as a $60 billion a year investment bank engaged in market making and asset management for equities, fixed income, commodity, and derivative securities for large institutional clients. Goldman Sachs, having been founded in 1869, is arguably the world's most recognizable name on Wall Street. Known for attracting some of the best financial talent, it is both respected and feared, in some cases being accused of ripping their clients off in the relentless pursuit of profits. Defenders of firms like Goldman Sachs make a big deal about how they're instrumental in the efficient allocation of financial capital. But one could argue the concentration of highly intelligent and motivated individuals operating what amounts to a glorified casino is a gross misallocation of human capital, robbing other critical sectors of talent that would otherwise have gone to engineering real solutions, not financial ones. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello and welcome back to the myth of the 20th century. First of all, um, thanks for sticking with us. Sorry if we've been a little bit uh, slow lately. Uh, all of us have had a lot of work and some of us have been dealing with a few health-related things, uh, nothing too serious, so we're feeling better, and we're ready to, uh, I guess, enjoy the summer, if possible, with all of y'all. So what we wanted to talk about today was a name that I think most people are familiar with, but I would argue most people are not really very familiar with the details and the inner workings of how it functions, and that is referring to the investment bank Goldman Sachs. And uh, I guess we could just jump right into it. Like, what is this thing? Well, um, I guess as a as a young man, I was sort of vaguely familiar with the concept of an investment bank versus a commercial bank, which is what your typical neighborhood bank is like, where you have a savings account and your parents maybe have a mortgage with them because, uh, you know, most people don't own their house outright. The bank owns the house. And then the commercial bank's job is to, uh, well, (laughs) it's sort of self-appointed job, by the way, this is kind of a very, this is getting into how our economy is structured, but it is function in the American system is to lend out, uh, a certain amount of money on paper, at least, to you and then you are obligated to pay them monthly a payment for a house Uh, once you've reached that point in your life that's the goal of the economic policy makers typically of the united states to get you invested in the system and uh, that is typically the largest investment and asset slash liability in anyone's portfolio so that is commercial banking and that was actually segregated from investment banking 
back in the Depression with the Glass-Steagall Act, which actually held effect until uh, 1999, I believe, uh, with uh, the lobbying efforts of the New York banks, uh, chiefly uh, that of Sandy Weil and people like that at Citigroup et al., uh, getting the Clinton administration to actually get rid of that and then allowed the consolidation of these banks into ever larger entities, including investment banking versus commercial banking. But investment banking, what is it? Okay, we somewhat established what commercial banks do, but what do investment banks do? Well, they don't write mortgages, for example. But what they do is they typically focus on the capital and financial needs of businesses as opposed to consumers. And they have a myriad of business ways of making money, basically, but they have divisions that are dedicated to uh, securities investments, uh, underwriting, uh, initial public offerings. That's more of a recent thing that's become big since kind of the internet bubble. Uh, but you know, one of their oldest activities was just simply making markets between large institutional investors where you don't necessarily have something that is as liquid as the New York Stock Exchange or the London Stock Exchange or Tokyo or whatever. It's really more these bespoke uh, types of financial instruments that are not as liquid and not as well understood. And so typically you have trading desks uh, that are dedicated to servicing these types of financial instruments, uh, such as collateralized debt obligations and things like that, that got uh, the whole world into trouble back in 2008. Uh, swaps, derivatives, things like that, that are very complicated by comparison to something like a stock or even a bond. And a bond is actually a little bit more complicated and mathematically uh, detailed than a stock because it has interest payments, uh, maturity dates, things like that, that actually uh, you can mathematically derive a lot of the value from as opposed to a stock where you're kind of just guessing like what the future cash flows are. Uh, but bonds are typically more of a predictable instrument. And so you have uh, mathematical models built around them and the uh, the types of traders who work in them are typically a little bit more quantitative as opposed to uh, salesman-like, which is more of where the equity people are. But anyway, I'm just giving examples. It's it's sort of hard to wrap your head around it still because there's just so many branches of a bank like Goldman Sachs. It's it's hard to sum up because at the end of the day, what they do is really all abstract. It's not they're not making um, making physical things. They're not rolling uh, I beams in a in a rolling mill, you know, out of iron ore. It's it's not something you look at. It's really just legal documents that they collect fees on. Um, and this bank has been around for a long time. It's, it's actually, it was founded in 1869. And I don't know if it was founded in New York, but it's definitely concentrated on the financial activities of New York. And, uh, it, uh, it's considered basically the most prestigious investment bank in the United States for sure. If not the entire world, uh, the attention it got after the financial crisis, though, was um, less than flattering. And I think a lot of people might be familiar with uh, Matt Taibbi's Rolling Stone article, um, something to the effect of the vampire squid, uh, referring to Goldman Sachs being embedded throughout the, uh, the world's economies 
with its uh, tentacles of malcontent and uh, intent. And I would never read the article. Um, and I, I, the only thing I know about actually Matt Taibbi is he was on Joe Rogan and I saw a clip of him. I didn't listen to the full show, but he basically just said like, he kind of admitted that he didn't really understand the company. And so it was his like attempt to wrap his head around this thing. And he claims that he sort of stumbled into this, uh, conclusion that it's, it's this, uh, awful entity. I kind of, to be honest, doubt that he didn't have that preordained conclusion. And then he sort of sought out pieces of evidence to support that conclusion, but I could be wrong. Maybe he just was completely open-minded and he was completely shocked that this bank was out to make money, uh, potentially at the, uh, at the negative, uh, effect on its clients, which is actually one of the entry points for me was, uh, there was this book that came out by a guy named Greg Smith, uh, who is from South Africa. And his name is, uh, quite Anglo obviously, but he's actually Jewish. And he wrote a book, um, forget the exact year, but I want to say, yeah, maybe around 2009-ish, 2010. And it was um, entitled Why I Left Goldman Sachs. And it was pitched as sort of a tell-all about the inner workings of the bank and uh, why he left, obviously, and why the company has perhaps gone in a poor direction. And uh, the book was all right. I, I, I actually found it more interesting and in just in terms of like the mechanics of like what the bank does. He was on the derivatives desk. Uh, he was more of a salesman slash trader. He wasn't, uh, they have they have three types. I forget the third, but basically he wasn't a quant. He was more on the sales side and his job was to recommend to clients uh, instruments that might help them in their particular um, operations. And so, his clients would be, uh, you know, pension funds, investors, things like that. And so he would recommend these bespoke derivatives that the bank would dream up. The quants would typically come up with them that would be tied to particular economic indicators, fluctuations, and they could, the clients, that is, they could theoretically uh, smooth out their predicted uh, returns and limit their risks uh, with these instruments in case uh, bad things happened, uh, there would be contingencies built into these contracts. And so these things are complicated. You need somebody who's fairly intelligent. He went to Stanford and he was also um, one of Goldman's recruiters uh, trying to hire people of that, uh, of that type. And he kind of goes into how Goldman, and this is pretty well known, but just like the details of it are interesting. Um, how they make a big effort to obviously hire really intelligent people, but also people who, in his words, and I thought it was well said, um, actually, who have good judgment as opposed to just raw intelligence. Because there's there's a difference. There's some people that I've known who are very bright, and uh, I've, I've struggled with this actually somewhat in my younger years before hopefully maturing somewhat, that, uh, you know, being the smartest person in the room isn't necessarily the best route to getting what you want. Uh, sometimes it takes a lot of political, unfortunately, but just a lot of, uh, diplomacy, frankly, that you need to be able to sell your position without pissing people off. And a lot of the internship process that Goldman has is designed to filter out people who would be 
bad in front of clients, basically, that would offend them, that would uh, make the firm look bad, etc. So you have to be uh, careful about where you apply your, your intelligence. You have to know when it's correct and appropriate and how to do it. And it really is, um, at the end of the day, it's kind of a, an institution built on, on sales. Like it's, it's a very much, um, it's what a trader does. He tries to convince you that what he's got is a good deal. And a lot of it is phone driven. Uh, obviously there's emails now, but, uh, typically these big financial decisions typically are not all automated, uh, still because the people who are putting millions or billions of dollars on the line don't want to screw it up. And so they feel like if they're paying this bank a fair amount of money, well, they ought to get somebody on the other end of the line that can convince them of what the right course is. So the book is all right. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's good for describing kind of how the bank personnel's, uh, is, is organized, like how the people work and different divisions. Um, it doesn't really, the problem I I'd have with it is it, and other people have as has have had as well is that it doesn't really get into like why this bank is, uh, so awful that he felt like he had to write this uh, quote unquote tell all book that exposed them. Um, it, it doesn't really say much. Like it basically, he's like, yeah, he's, he's happy to be there. Uh, for about 75% of the book. And then he gets offered a job in London that he didn't necessarily want. Uh, and then he kind of has to uh, apologize to his boss that he uh, he didn't show the expected amount of enthusiasm initially, but he appreciates very much this wonderful offer to go to London that he finally goes to London. And that is where he discovers this... Um, this trading culture that is different from where he was working, which was in New York and also to a certain extent in the San Francisco office in California and as well as Palo Alto recruiting at Stanford. Uh, he notices that the culture at London is very much, um, a cutthroat one versus the one in New York that used the term, uh, Muppets. That's where that term comes from. The, there were some traders who were talking behind the backs of their clients, basically calling them Muppets, which, um, Honestly, to me, never really seemed like who gives a shit. I mean, it's a stupid uh, Jim Henson character. I mean, it's like I. Whoa, 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 uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jim Henson? Stupid? Hi, Nick. Hey, Adam. I, I was busy making a martini. I hope I arrived here in time to hear you defending Goldman Sachs. Well, you are clearly the Muppet expert. I am not. I just, all I was saying was that I never found it all that derogatory because I unironically was a fan of Kermit and all well, yeah. that. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Okay, there you go. Yeah, no, what I meant was it was a stupid uh, slur because it's not really that, like, not really that insulting. I mean, it's, anyway, but that was a very famous um, soundbite that got broadcast out as, like, why this big bad investment bank is so awful is that they call their clients Muppets. I'm like, I don't care, man, as long as they're making me money. Uh, that's why they're hired. And actually yeah. in that book, it was kind of uh, kind of telling. I mean, because he, after the financial crisis happened, um, the, the bailout, okay, we should give a little history if people aren't familiar. Um, it's a huge topic. We 
might do a show on it. I don't know. It's it's a big, big, big topic. There's many decent documentaries and movies um, that that are on that particular subject. People can go check them out. But I, uh, I actually uh, I wrote a uh, a research paper on the topic in mm-hmm. college. Uh, I'd have to, you know, I could I could actually go dig it up. It'd be uh, hmm. real. Probably blast in the past. Probably. Well, don't dox yourself, but yeah, well, you go find it yeah. and then uh, see if there's anything useful. That'd yeah, be but I, I wrote I wrote a, a very extensive paper on it. Uh, I probably spent three months working on. It was basically a paper nice. for this whole class. Is mostly just this paper. And um, how was how well was it received? It was received well. You know, at the end of it, I uh, I had found a lot of you know esoteric and obscure sources, all kinds of different takes on it, more mainstream takes. I had rented out a few books from the library on it and taken out excerpts. And you know, at the end of it, I sat back and I thought, I still have no clue uh, how a, a lot of this really happened, <laughs> and a lot of it is so esoteric, and a lot of it has. There are so many elements yeah. of it that have such strange origins yeah. and so many knock-on effects. Right. Um, you know, you almost you almost understand why um, the head of the Federal Reserve, the head of the Treasury, head of the New York Fed, a couple other government officials, head of the SEC, and every CEO of every major bank in this country – got in a room together and basically sat down and uh, the, the topic was what is happening? And it became very apparent that this was so complicated and they were clearly getting together to see how they could somehow save themselves, make money and, you know, reposition the American banking sector for something new. But uh, a huge part of that meeting, those meetings that took place at the New York Fed, the infamous meetings uh, and the financial crisis, which are totally illegal, by the way, that, that all of that broke like every single law. And it was totally unethical for the head of the New York Fed to get in a room <laughs> with the head of like of banking institutions at the head of the within the Treasury secretary. Are you there. sure it was illegal? I'll defer to you if it you was, know that no, for a it, fact. It was but. clearly there. There were several papers on it written after the fact that talked about the my uh, research okay. that talked about the legality that. Okay, but to, to me it doesn't seem unethical because it's sort of mm-hmm. the the Fed's job to. I mean, well, well you could yeah, argue what it should be done, but I believe the legal function of charter to oversee these banks. Yeah, and they're it's here supposed to be like banking working stability. with them. So my point is, you know, they did. My point is not about the, the legality, although there were many legal scholars who basically said, yeah, that was basically illegal. But, you know, it was at such a high level that it, what are you really going to do? I mean, the president of the United States signed off on it. He's the one who sent. Yeah, it's the, like your house is on fire. It's like, are you going right. to get the, the the law book before you get the hose? I mean, you know, exactly, you just, yeah, exactly. My point is, you know, these guys broke the book. Totally unethical. Totally insane to do this. Never really been done before. Probably since the days of Jekyll Island, ironically. And where, where, uh, they, where they created they created the, the this, yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, nearly a hundred years later, here they are, same kind of deal, except talking about how to save themselves from 
calamity. And my point is, you know, it was so overly complicated. And and it, there were so many variables. And all of these banks had their own positions. And they none of them could really figure out the wider strategic goal was and, and how to fix it. And, uh, and Goldman was, of course, kind of... Um, Someone at the center of this, uh, although Goldman, you know, wasn't didn't have the exposure that other uh, financial institutions no. did, uh, which is interesting. You know, Goldman, it's interesting. They, they where, might have, but uh, my my limited understanding was that they actually unwound a lot of those positions. They, before. Yeah, they were very yeah. sharp too. Yeah. They 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 knew. I mean, that was one of the criticisms is that they had actively <laughs> created this market and then un, and then unwound it, it. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. I actually look i'm not like pro like wall street here but i actually can understand and even defend goldman sachs's point here is that this is a let me let me see how many employees they have um it's on wikipedia according to them at least um they have they have close to 44,000 employees and they have a, a large, you know, well, they have a footprint all over the planet. They have many different divisions and some of which are tasked with different, different jobs. One of which is to run a hedge fund, um, which they closed apparently, but probably partly due to uh, a lot of the bad press they were getting. But one of the other functions is uh, just client service and they just do what the client asked them to do at the end of the day. They may make recommendations, but the client is really telling them buy, sell, you know, et cetera. So if the client tells them to sell or buy, and then at the other end of the the building, some other guy is just running a fund who has different clients. He decides to do the opposite. I mean, I, that's not, that's not a conflict of interest. It's basically, and that's what Lloyd Blankfein we can talk about him, but he was the CEO at the time. He got called in front of Congress. He basically said that. It's like, look, we're tasked to do what's best for clients, but we may have different clients in different areas. And if there are disagreements amongst them, at the end of the day, we go with what the client wants. And then if it's not up to the client directly, we're going to do what we want. So if they're at odds, I... I just don't see how that's you know, and you know what's I mean, interesting like, about this is that uh, the criticisms of of Goldman and a lot of the large American banks for their role in the financial crisis is actually separate from the investment banking side of their business. I mean, the the, the i banking side has very little of anything to do with those assets that were purchased and those derivatives and the swaps and basically all those markets and markets of markets that they had created and participating in that was that's completely separate from the i-banking side from the asset management side i mean goldman had that under their uh who i think the, i don't know these they called it the, the time but it's a global markets business was, oh yeah well they have a they had a global alpha fund yeah and, fund. And, and it's a bunch of like you're yeah. a bunch of funds within funds and they have they they give yeah. you know groups liquidity and they act as partners and but you know the it's in, the way that goldman really works or it worked then and it's it, and it works now um 
is it you know there's there's the there's the four there's the three or four big pieces the three big pieces to Goldman are uh, the markets business the i banking and asset management uh, and as part of asset management um, you I guess you can throw in wealth management which is like trusts and stuff like that okay but assets asset management okay it's client focused asset management but. Goldman, what it's ultimately trying to do is a publicly traded, large, conglomerate commercial bank. Um, it has to create systems of wealth generation to benefit shareholders, to benefit clients on its asset management side, to benefit clients on its iBanking side, and to generally create markets that are conducive to all of that, or potentially unwind markets so that capital can be pushed elsewhere. So you know when you talk about like how banks control the economy, and it's it's very true. This is how large banks control the economy. You have multiple sources of uh, money that's distributed to Goldman capital that they can use whatever they want with, and that's coming from sources that have nothing to do and are not revenue generated by the market side that they have at their disposal to put into those into that market's business. Uh, and so they can then create whole markets. So the, you know the i banking side can benefit by Goldman, you know, moving capital around markets. Let's say in the technology sector, that they're buying equities in the technology sector, uh, they're buying debt products of of tech companies. Uh, they can then move capital a certain way. They can create market conditions that are conducive to their investment banking operation or equity underwriting or debt underwriting operation for a potentially new tech company. So it, it's a system it's you know systems within systems and this is how you sort of engineer uh, things to your advantage. And by the way, publicly traded, you have shareholders you have to keep happy. And you have a ton of employees you have to pay well, and you have to give out bonuses and commissions. So there's lots of there's a lot at stake. So you can suddenly see the logic of maybe why Goldman would do some of the things it does. Now I'm not condoning that, but this is why they do the things they do. Goldman will purposefully uh, in you know, sort of create markets or destroy markets to benefit its own overall goals. And they do that with multiple sources of capital that often have nothing to do from the revenues or profits generated from the market's business. That is why you know, all the criticisms of you know, it's too big, it's too powerful, has too much capital is very true. It's also why you, know, you, have, you have all the discussions of capital controls and, and reserves and because this is right. You know, this is what happened in the '30s, and this is what used to happen in banking crises for hundreds of years in the United States. And this is why we have the FDIC. Is, you know, banks would put it all on the line. They'd put all the money on the line from all these different business lines, all these different products into a into single small, you know, uh, swap investments or land, or speculate land speculation or bond speculation, and the whole thing goes belly up, and they've completely destroyed multiple business lines that had nothing to do with that. And so this is the logic of, man, we should break break these banks up, and then the logic of actually it's better if they're cohesive because they can build markets, expand markets, invest in markets. That's why we broke Glass-Steagall. That's what this is all about. But Goldman, you know, didn't start out this way. Well, Goldman, Gold, Goldman was, you know, re, re, originally really a, 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 a like 
a small were, investment bank, effectively. Right. They were a and, partnership, and yeah, one of the a, it was a, right. They, you know, you can actually still find a lot of these uh, limited partner investors all over the place. Um, and there's a lot of small and medium-sized investors that are still partnerships, or they're still small groups. Investment groups are still very much a thing. Um, probably the majority of invested capital in a given year comes uh, uh, from, uh, you know, investment groups and, and small companies and partnerships that um, probably have a very a fraction of the amount of people and reserves and capital that Goldman does. So it's still a facet of it, but Goldman started out like that. It started out as one of these small investment groups. It grew, you know, it wasn't always this behemoth. In fact, for a long time, it was uh, basically, um, I want to say for maybe 70, 80, almost 100 years uh, from its founding until, uh, um, you know, the 50s, uh, the 1950s, it was like, Small time. Goldman was was a really small player. It was it was almost uh, irrelevant in the broader scheme of things. Certainly irrelevant in comparison to uh, uh, particularly uh, what would go on to become Morgan Stanley. Uh, I'm sorry. What would be go, go on to become J.P. Morgan and just mm -hmm. you know the Morgan companies in particular, much more important players uh, both then and today in the economy. The interesting thing is that Goldman is probably one of the more recent additions to the mega Wall Street group. It hasn't been; it has not actually been there that long, and it's amassed power very quickly. In terms in terms of revenues, uh, J.P. Morgan is certainly larger in terms of yeah. the assets and their direct balance sheet. I guess uh, their direct ownership of assets. I think they're substantially larger but I, I don't think it's inaccurate uh to say that goldman for i would say more than recently has been probably the most influential bank yes in the united yeah. states and that i think that honestly just stems from the fact that they have extremely rigorous uh recruitment and personnel uh standards for and, and deeply, the sort of caliber deeply, of the people who work there Deeply aggressive investment policies and uh, deeply aggressive uh, sort of institutional culture. Um, like for for example, a, they you know just to contrast it with your you know friend down the street, um, the guys that work at Goldman. It, it, there's women who work there too, um, obviously, but uh, the culture at Goldman is you are expected to be in the office by. 7 a.m. And if you're late by three minutes, you know, your manager is going to have a conversation with you and you better be dressed correctly. And it's, it's, I'm sure it's like, it's relaxed versus where it was, uh, in this, in the sixties, but it's, it's one of the more, uh, in terms of its, its outward conduct and, and style and presentation, it's one of the more conservative institutions still that, can maintain that culture because of the vast amount of money that they pay these people. And so they'll put up with it because it's part of the, the cult of being a Goldman Sachs or whatever they call themselves. Uh, and just the people that have been there, they're, they're Ivy leaguers and they've been through the London school of economics. I'm looking at Robert Rubin's resume right now. Um, I actually, 
owned his book um, after he became a treasury secretary. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He had arguably a lot to do with the fact that Glass-Steagall was uh, deep sixed and the um, derivatives also were a lot of people want to blame somebody. I don't think it's as simple as blaming one or two people, but uh, I've heard from people who work in banking industry that uh, the name uh, Brooks Lee Bourne, she was the uh, commodities futures trading commission uh, chief um, uh, basically in charge of like derivatives uh, effectively because of the way uh, commodity futures and um, forward contracts are structured. It's, effectively the institution that regulates all derivatives, which is this, um, uh, derivative is basically, it's, it's not a direct ownership of a particular financial asset. It is a derivative of it in such that it is, uh, is conditional upon certain events triggering before there is a payoff, such as like an option as a strike price, et cetera. That's that's another derivative. Uh, but she wanted to the, the CFTC, by the way. Yeah, uh, it notoriously one of the most like uh, uh, unprepared, underfunded, and routinely um, sort of purged bureaucracies in in DC, uh, and has numerous sort of scandals involving either corruption or be, you know, the accusation quote, sleep, asleep at the wheel became a phrase in the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is still a phrase today. It's notoriously, um, a, a sort of gutted institution. And it's also, well, what uh, one could argue that's not their fault. It, it, it a lot of it, fault. And par- partly and what Brooks Lee like, was trying to do is she wanted to move more of the authority towards them so that they couldn't yes, be yeah. ineffective in, in preventing, frankly, a lot of the, uh, the over leveraging of the economy that happened prior to the financial crisis that led to it arguably. So it, it, it is sort of a, the, the industry did a good job from their perspective and basically kneecapping it uh, so that it couldn't regulate them very well. Um, well, this, this was a big piece of drama in the <clears throat> late 90s, uh, well, mid to late 90s and even early 2000s, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, or yeah, Graham-Leach Act or whatever, and, which was undoing Glass-Steagall or the... Uh, uh, I think it was the Citibank Relief Act or something like that. And, uh, you know, it, a lot of that was was interestingly papered over by a couple things going on at the time. Um, number one, the economy was doing well. Number two, the Cold War was over. There was a general era of good feeling. Uh, number three, you know, right as you would have assumed there would be more investigation of uh, – Wall Street and or white you know white collar crime so to speak, uh, the global terrorism racket began. Now this is like by the way what I'm saying is sort of an old uh, sort of W era lib talking point of, about you know what happened, but it is effectively true that a lot this was debated and there was some you know level of intrigue uh, around uh, Goldman in the 90s. Uh, and around the uh, the banking sector in the 90s and early 2000s, but a lot of it was papered over by a series of other phenomena that were more interesting or more more evocative. And and honestly, um, the banking sector was doing great in the 90s, 
and so is the general economy. You had massive amounts of investment, and Goldman was at the was a big player in that. Goldman was a huge player in investing in the '90s with international investment, and uh, they were one of the original uh, sort of uh, perpetrators of the uh, of the tech boom in the '90s and early 2000s. So you know they. Well, okay, that. That's a little bit um, general. So I, I think yes, but, th- th- what they were doing was they were underwriting IPOs, which uh, and maybe they were doing other things, I, which I'm not familiar with. But I thought that was their principal role in the uh, the, the e the e or dot com boom, et cetera, whereby an underwriter's job is to structure the public offering of a previously private company that has now graced itself to uh, a certain stability and public investor class rating such that it can now be owned by the general public. And so in order to do that, you have to go through obviously all the regulatory filings that the SEC requires, but also then line up uh, purchasers of this new stock, which has never been bought before on the public markets. Uh, such that the company selling these shares is not going to get fleeced. And so you have to get these, the idea is at least you get these iBanks to help you do a roadshow to all these uh, mutual funds and pension funds and institutional investors that could potentially uh, support your next phase of financial capital raising and get you a valuation that is reasonable, that doesn't crater immediately because it's overhyped or something so that you don't look like a, you know, a criminal organization. You want to have uh, a chart that goes upwards and to the right, as they say. And so you want to have a stock price that, you know, IPOs and then goes up. And so everybody's happy, et cetera. So the iBank can help you do that because they're good at sales and, you know, structuring things. And so if you do it wrong though, then, um, you know, you have one of these like WeWork stocks that like IPOs then like plummets 86%. It, it looks terrible for the bank. It looks terrible for the company. Yeah, it looks, well, it doesn't, doesn't just looks, it, it is bad for anybody who bought the thing. So you want to have a good iBank that can help you offer on on the public market you know for the first time the ipo so that's kind of what you'd go to an ibank for one of the, one big example that goldman was helping companies with i don't know what companies they helped with but i'm sure we've heard of some of them so uh what did you think of this book by uh yeah by mr smith yeah uh, so because you know i wanted to i wanted to say that there have been many of these like uh, I worked at right. the bank, and I it, here's what they don't want you to know. And right. generally, you know, the tenor of these articles or books is uh, very uh, vague and also not very informative. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of all these books the CIA allows uh, their previous officers, well, quote-unquote previous uh, workers and employees to write because they have the, the when you work for controversy the, about the Navy SEAL who like wanted to write a book about how he bragging about how he was the guy that uh, whacked 
bin Laden and he wanted to like give the play by play and the mm. Pentagon want he was like, Oh, we might block the book and mm. we don't want to give away operational secrets. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know <laughs> this about is that. Ridiculous. But, it, yeah. But all, all I'm but, saying is uh what's probably something like that is that, you know, these uh supposed tell alls are, are typically uh very well uh supervised and you know, I don't necessarily think that's what happened with him. I mean, a lot of the calculus that goes on in somebody's head like this is like, well, what do I do afterwards? And the problem with a guy like that doesn't have to be him particularly, but anybody who does like sort of a, a smear campaign on their previous employer, well, who the hell is going to trust you after that? So you just work for this company making half a million a year for a decade. And it took you that long, first of all, to figure out that there's something wrong. And well, are you going to get the money back? You know, probably not. And then should I hire you? Or are you going to do that to me? So it, it's like, okay, man, like what, what's, what's your goal here? Well, let me just give you one other fact. Uh, so he was getting paid about half a million um, for like a decade. <laughs> so <laughs> what took him so long? And, uh, and then um, he got a one and a half million dollar advance on his book. And the book doesn't really say anything like it basically just talks about how the company has all this, you know, it's got a team player culture. And then after the financial crisis, it all changed. And then they got really cutthroat or something. Well, you also changed offices and I doubt it was, you know, flowers and roses prior to the financial crisis. So I don't know. I don't really know if he's all that credible to be honest. Yeah. And I feel like people are, no, they, they expect from these books uh, to basically be a, a uh, deeply uh, investigated and academic uh, take from the first-person perspective with like all the, the secrets they don't want you to know. And the reality is that if you you know any any history I've read of Goldman or any of these banks or American banking in general, you can get sorted details or you can get into complexities or you can sort of learn about the day to days of you know investment schemes and sort of uh, political maneuvering and how much of it really sticks and and how you're able to string it together into a wider narrative is difficult and. I'm, you know, not that surprised that this guy like wrote a, a book, and on some level, he's ba- it's basically actually bragging about how great Goldman is. It is, and yeah, and uh, and and by extension, how great he is to be yes, able to work there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I mean, you know, the, the, yeah. there was um, there's a similar text, uh, and we'll go, I guess we'll get into like a general history of Goldman, just you know, for for the audience's sake here. But there was a, a similar text. Uh, by a guy named Stephen Mandis. I haven't actually read the whole thing. I've read pieces of it uh, in preparation for this. Mm-hmm. Um, another guy that worked at Goldman and, and had some... Well, I don't know if he technically worked at Goldman. He he wrote up like a whole sociological study of Goldman. And uh, he had like been at Citibank and McKinsey and he'd done a bunch of other work. And... Um, it's very similar pieces of it that I would read. I'd pick out are like bragging about how great the culture used to be, and and you know every and and like it the the managerial structure was really well put together and it was effective and um and um 
all of a sudden, you know, oh, things got bad. Things got bad. We don't, you know, we don't, we don't know what happened, but everybody got mean and the manager stopped taking stuff seriously. And by the nineties, everybody was really cut, cutthroat and, and it became, you know, just, just really hard to work there. And, you know, I'm like trying to pick stuff out of this book. And I'm, I mean, I think there's probably truth to that. I mean, they were yeah. a private company, the, the, honestly just the financial and every friggin industry in the planet has gotten much more cutthroat because the competition has ratcheted up with globalization i mean you know you are literally a click away now for just about everything and right people are just fighting you know tooth and nail whereas before you know it was sort of like your local hardware store is it i mean that that was your competition you know there was no competition or you're the phone company like that's it like there's it was much more lazy and uh you know maybe more laid back and healthy frankly but it was just not as competitive so i think there was a general trend towards becoming more cutthroat i think the dollar amounts have increased since the deregulation so there's more incentives to be really nasty and then also the public um the ipo uh, around like 2000 or so that I think changed the culture too. Uh, and then financial crisis. Yeah, I could see how that could change the culture. Um, but my only complaint is that these guys, you know, well, you took the money for that long and now you're writing a book for more money. I just, I I think it's hypocritical. I, I, you know, like it'd be one thing if they worked there for, um, a year and then they, they, that's enough time to like kind of get an idea of what's going on. But you ought to know by then, like this whole, like, Oh, I was there for three decades and then I left to write this like smear campaign. I, I just, I questioned the, the character of the people doing that. And the, it, it just cast doubt on their whole like thesis then. Um, and it almost like puts them in the same, like, or worse, uh, cause they're not loyal. It, it puts them in a, a bad light, just like everybody else they're trying to say is bad. Um, so I, you know, I, the whole group kind of seems <laughs> a little bit morally questionable. And, and, uh, what was the term, uh, Peter Thiel used for describing Uber morally challenged. I think that would be a good description yeah. for the whole company. Yeah. I think morally challenged, you know, the other way to look at it is that, um, In the starting in the '60s, we've touched on this before. Uh, banking became in, increasingly competitive and uh, increasingly large, or more consolidated, and the economy was becoming much more financialized. And there were there was much more opportunity to make vast sums of of money. If you could simply navigate the, you know, some basically schemes. And the reality is that the vast majority of people are not interested in concocting schemes. People to just make things or just to participate in something or just to get something done. And Goldman, you can tell from its history, uh, has always kind of almost been, you know, starting in the 80s, 
became like this uh, sort of reviled character because it was willing to do things that were just seen as uh, like schemes, scams. They, they kept getting into trouble. They kind of set the stage with the Penn Central uh, crisis in the 80s. And they, they got dinged for a bunch of insider trading scandals in, in the late 80s and the early 90s. And um, they were just willing to do whatever it took to make money. And, in, you know, interestingly, Goldman was partially involved in uh, the privatization craze of the 90s you know with the 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 death of the soviet union and the death of um many not just socialist or or communist aligned governments but there was a general unwinding of state-owned enterprises uh outside of the communist world in place in indonesia and latin america it was just a general trend he found Goldman all over the place. And Goldman was, you know, very deeply involved in Asia, Latin America, and the former Soviet Union in privatization, in debt offerings, debt underwriting. Um, and you can see it as an attempt to basically, control, like I was explaining earlier, create the conditions to control markets. And oftentimes, as we know, these privatization efforts didn't work very well or they were purposefully botched either to uh, make money or to, you know, sort of uh, denigrate the idea of doing any privatization or, you know, I don't, sometimes it's not clear what the motive is. So what, what does that mean they were botched? Well, so take, for example, some of the privatizations in Indonesia, uh, Mexico, and former Soviet Union. Oftentimes, for example, the privatizations uh, are done for pennies on the dollar, effectively. I'm familiar with the, um, the, the Soviets, you know, having that problem. So that happened in Indonesia? Yeah, well, Indonesia and Southeast Asia in general happened in Mexico. And... Uh, and so yeah, the the buyers of these uh, you know jewel jewel prime assets were paying pennies on the dollar. And who were these buyers? I mean, just primar- you know, generally I mean, speaking, so like oligarks it, it or was, Goldman yeah, themselves. You, you, you or saw this general trend pension of funds, like private. Inv- so it was either private investment groups or private investors that Goldman would facilitate. And oftentimes these people were very not particularly interested in even utilizing these assets. So you had whole pieces okay. of economies effectively going offline not you know and then stripped and sold this is kind of what happened here in, in this country and you also had a huge amount of formerly state owned properties turned into sort of real estate uh, industrial trusts and similar to what we have here or real estate investment trusts i should say and uh they're allowed to languish or they're leveraged up on debt. 
Are uh, there, you know, the, the government will use bonds, which are then also acquired by Goldman to help pay for the leveraging. And so this is kind of what happened. This is part of what gets unwound in Mexico's financial crisis in 1994. And, and, uh, and, and Goldman's at the center of that. I think they had exposure of a couple billion dollars or some, some large fund. And in 1994, you know, exposure of a couple billion dollars uh, was massive. I mean, today that would be at least a 15, $20 billion uh, loss. So, I, I know the uh, Clinton administration basically bailed out Mexico. I yes. Don't know and how this, much of that you, and went to this, Goldman you can directly, kind of, but. Well, you can see like uh, Goldman already had people within the Clinton administration. Well, Robert Clinton. Rubin, for example, was yes, a, a Goldman yeah. co-chairman and he, uh, he then left to become treasury secretary, which, which has been a long running trend. The, uh, I don't know the current, uh, current treasury secretary is Janet Yellen or, uh, I think she no, was at the... it's Gary Gensler, and he was at Goldman too. Oh, great. Okay. Well, what is she? Oh, wait. What, what, what is what is Yellen? Because I know that she's. Uh... No, actually, you know what? You're right. Gensler is at the SEC. Yellen was uh, what used to be Fed. Uh, you know, Yellen is interesting that she's an academic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, she's like Bernanke <laughs> in that she is a yeah she she's like a labor economist, um, which basically means she she is. Uh, completely devoid of any practical. <laughs> I mean, labor, like labor economists, in my experience, are just completely. Yeah, they're 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 clueless. Field. They're clueless. They're totally about clueless. How it's actual it's, corporate? It's a whole field that was function. invented. In the, yeah. It was invented in the 1970s. And <laughs> it's like it's, it's. We have job lock. <laughs> yes, they yeah, don't want I to mean, train their workers. <laughs> the best, the best economists are the agricultural, the, the, uh, some of the industrial ones, like those guys, those well, people. They're not as politicized. I mean, like agriculture, agri- agronomists, like they're basically like, okay, how do we improve the yield? You can measure yeah, this. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. It's not like, uh, how do we motivate like this uh, multi-ethnic uh, labor force? <laughs> There's <laughs> like, also like real work on the line for the agronomists. Like, like we could have like, you could lose a huge amount of crops if we don't do this right. We could have like food prices spike by 13 cents and here's the effects of that. And like they, they do real stuff. Like those guys actually try and do real economic planning to, to an extent and, and real technical research. Um, Anyways, this but, but is, anyway, this is, Goldman has has had a long running history of having treasury secretaries. Yes, uh, yeah. in the government. Hank, and so the, the the one I was mentioning earlier, Paulson, Hank Paulson, the yeah. most notorious, probably like Goldman shill of all time, and uh, you know, I, yeah, uh, I think he Warren I think he, like, Buffett defended away, him. Which he walked you could, away with you, like two hundred billion, two hundred million dollars or something when. Uh, Goldman went public and, and he put it in a trust or whatever. But mm-hmm. you, I mean, you have to realize like the, the secretary of the treasury <laughs> at the time had, had like in the, in his bank, probably hundred, probably close to $400 million. Like this guy did not care at all. Effectively. He was, you know, you can tell too that, um, I mean, he cares about his the reputation. way. The way that he 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 like he he just completely nuked Lehman. And so, uh, all right, let, let let's just try to give some facts before we weigh in too much. Uh, so, 
I think uh, that particular incident was probably one of the more controversial ones because what happened was Bear Stearns was was kaput. Like they, they just let it happen because the uh, mentality was, this was still the Bush administration. Like this is, this is getting on in years. Like that guy was still like at the tail end of his admin. And, uh, and then Obama, you know, was, was just sort of doing his campaigning and um, they let Bear Stearns go under and it ended up getting scooped up, I think by Merrill Lynch, but it, uh, it was then, uh, I don't know if AIG was next, which is an insurance company, which got involved in not insuring like life insurance or car insurance. It was like doing financial insurance, which is like this really dangerous. You can't really do actuarial models because it's an unstable system. They were basically doing these uh, swap insurance deals, which is is not even worth going into, but they, they had a problem. And then Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was like this just traditional old school investment bank that had a lot of exposure to the mortgage market and they were highly leveraged. And then they were also, they were on the wrong side of the trade, uh, like themselves, like they were obligated basically to, to pay if certain things happen, which they predicted would never happen, but it did because the price of houses started going down more than they anticipated. And so they basically were underwater. And so they were not bailed out. Uh, and that was sort of at the direction of um, former Goldman Sachs. I think he was CEO. Uh, Hank Paulson was actually CEO of Goldman Sachs, but now he's at treasury and he, they were allowed to fail. And, then things really got going and the controversy was i think that the the implication was that well goldman would be allowed to survive but you know goldman competitor would be allowed to go under and the treasury secretary is coming from goldman so there maybe was like a conflict of interest and then the secondary criticism was that if they had saved lehman and cuz bear stearns was relatively small compared to these other banks, um, if they had actually done the troubled asset relief program, the TARP program, which was about $700 billion that the Congress had to authorize to give to all these potentially troubled and legitimately troubled banks, um, if Lehman was allowed into that program, uh, the whole cascading problem may not have even been um, happening and it made that TARP program may not have been necessary. So I think that was the particular event that Paulson got a lot of flack for. Uh, and his argument was that, well, sort of, sort of like what, uh, you know, Mellon, uh, or whatever the guys, uh, the treasury secretary back during the, uh, great depression was saying, was like, well, we need to actually clean the system out. So I think he had some of that probably, at least that's what he said, uh, he had some of that mind that like, we, well, we do need to let some of these bad banks, you know, go under because the culture in which they were built upon was fraudulent and wrong. And so let the better companies take their spot. I think that's probably what some of what he was thinking was. Now, was it correct? Well, many people will debate whether that was correct, but I think that's where the criticism and the specific events around the criticism were. Um, I want to just lay that out before people 
you know, just sort of take without like looking into the details, what it means to when, when we say, you know, Paulson might've been a bad actor. Personally, I'm not really, not really sure what his intentions were. Um, and I think it's debatable what he should have done because eventually he, he got around to the, the idea of basically bailing these things out, which also was criticized. So, I mean, you see how schizophrenic this whole thing was basically the whole thing kind of was a problem and people are like, well, we just, you should have done that. You should have bailed Again, this Neiman is why out. They just got in a room together and were like, what the fuck well, yeah, shut, shut up the, the idiots, you know, who like don't really know what the hell they're talking about. We're just going to solve this problem. Like, <laughs> what are we going to put it to a vote? You know, that the average Walmart shopper, like, you know, like, what do you think our, uh, you know, credit asset relief just, just, you know, program should look like, you know, uh, Mr. Uh, you know, Funyuns purchaser, or he's not going to, you know, have no idea. Uh, no, it doesn't mean he's maybe Man, not. You are more... just shilling for the technocracy here. I can't believe it. No, I'm just, I'm just trying to like be real here because, <laughs> I I don't think just I don't, to be real, I, I don't man. think motherjones.com has got the <laughs> the the crack advice that you know the president needs like in a situation like that. I'm sorry. Like I don't I don't think it's it's going to work. Um maybe longer term, you know, you should like listen to Mother Jones, but like they, they don't know what the hell how this stuff works. So um and I barely do. And I'm just like yeah. looking at it from the outside as a curious observer, but it's, um, it's all very overwhelming. But my main point was that like, it's very, the, the criticism is schizophrenic. And so that right there should tell you that like the critics should like calm down first of all, because one hand they're like, okay, don't like, you should have bailed out Lehman. So, okay. They're pro bailout. Okay. But then, then they criticize, the bailout program for all the banks. So they're anti bailout. So that's contradictory. So like, okay, Lehman brothers, like if I had asked you 12 years ago or uh, 14 years ago, God, it's been a long time. Uh, but whenever like the year before all this happened, well, what does Lehman brothers do? They, they have no idea. I actually met a guy who worked at Lehman brothers, like right before this happened. And, uh, and I, he's just like this normal guy. Like, Hey, yeah, I work on the bond desk and you know, like, whatever, like, just some like, you know, normal dude. And he didn't, he didn't seem like he had horns growing out of the back of his head. He just like a lot of people, they went to college, they wanted a nice job and they went to work for somewhere that would pay them well. And they could live in a nice, you know, city or something. So, you know, how do you, how do you assign blame here? I don't know. Um, Nobody went to jail, <laughs> I don't think, after this Actually, whole thing. ironically, I think um, one of the few people that technically did go to jail uh, for it was a low-level Goldman analyst for on like a, on like a technicality or, or – I can't remember the details, but there was a Goldman analyst mm. uh, who might have been like technically a Russian immigrant or something. There was like some Goldman <laughs> guy who like stole some trading code. I don't know if that's yeah, the guy you're thinking was, of. There, but there that that wasn't there. because of the financial crisis. That was just because I, he no, stole no, 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 something. No, 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 but it, it's like it's highlighted as a point of you know, like the, you know, the only guy yeah. who was employed by Goldman around that time when mm -hmm. all this happened that went to jail was for this yeah. almost unrelated reason. Yeah. So, so th this gets to another thing thought that I was having while I'm like listening to this uh, reading. You can read his um, op-ed on the New York Times, by the way, the 
the sort of tell-all uh, teaser, <laughs> if you think of it cynically. Uh, Greg Smith like leaked this, uh, and oh, it's it's so lame because in the book he says that he spent um, five months like curating this article. It's like two pages. It took you five months to do that, dude. Like I, I, I what, what are they paying you for? Like I, I I didn't see any genius turns of phrases or great insights at all from that thing. You could still find it. It's on there are there are Twitter anons that 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 craft more. Yeah. substantive content for free dude read zero heads it's like more interesting i mean it was so boring and like there's nothing there yeah. and like um so he claims he like he agonized you know and, and and made sure everything was right and okay dude so 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 anyway he he puts this thing up and then you know he sells his book and he goes on a book tour and and i don't know screw him um just another sleazy wall streeter frankly in my opinion <laughs> but, but, do we want to kind of dive into the history of goldman i mean we can at least uh, talk a little about yeah some of the uh, okay. mess they've been but, but in before and... i forget though uh and i'll just i'll just i guess do my own teaser here i wanted to get into the broader implications of what does this all mean man do we have an investment bank sector do we have banks at all um what do you do with this information? Do you put people like uh, Lloyd Blankfein in jail? Um, I'll just hold that for a thought when we're wrapping up. But um, let's maybe go into the history because I don't I don't have that much to say about the history of the bank. Well, the answer to both of those, it's good to start out with that. So the answer to both of those is, yeah, we need banks and we need banks to do investing. Yeah, I actually agree. And this this idea that uh, we don't need banks, man. It's um, I, I actually I would I would not be shocked if a lot of the sort of uh, weird banking criticisms that come from everybody you know across the spectrum, anti fagoons to libertarians, uh, to they just want somebody to explain. Well, like, hold on, blame. I, I think like all these people are probably like totally mind warped into giving you these totally bizarre ideas instead of just saying, you know, like, yeah, we actually do need these. We do need banks. We do need investment banks. They just shouldn't be able to do some of these. Well, th th this is why I was hoping Nick would stick around. I think he had to go to dinner, but he, um, he and I actually talked about this a little bit before, um, off air. His, his I, and attendees had arrived, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, did you want to do the history before, or are we going to talk yeah, about do we need we banks? Like, I mean, history, okay. yeah. so. so, I mean, in this book, did they, does he even go over the history? Like, does he give you a good... Not, no, 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 no. It's, it's just more of his his experience. He just he got in um, right at the <laughs> tail end of the tech boom. I've read, actually, another book a long time ago. I don't remember what it was called, but it, I think I checked it out of the library. It was about the history of Goldman Sachs. And I, I did remember like it was just an old bank and like they were much simpler there was a partnership structure and it did change after the ipo but other than that i don't remember enough of the details to really say anything interesting um you know i think probably just sort of my i mean look you can look this up but the evolution of the bank probably grew with like the overall complexity of the economy the financial the financialization of the economy, I'm sure, spurred much 
of the expansion of the bank and that they could open up these business lines that were previously sort of like, what, like, what are you doing? Like the, the derivatives desk, for example, I don't really think that would have been, have been nearly as large as it is today because frankly, the speculative nature of the economy was much less, uh, there was much less gambling going on effectively. Uh, Robert Rubin, for example, he used to work on this thing called the risk arbitrage desk. And honestly, like all that is, is basically like you're going to trade on insider information. Like, you know, that like mergers, mergers over here are going to happen versus mergers over there aren't going to happen. And therefore the valuation of this company is going to be this after the merger. I'm going to bet on that. Like, that's what they did um, back then. And that was sort of like a boutique, probably like, I don't know, 20 person team at most. And they're just putting deals together to like execute on the probabilities and et cetera of certain events happening. But now, I mean, they're just servicing everybody they could find. Um, I don't know if they're in crypto yet, but I'll bet you they will be if they're not. Uh, and then they got into the algorithmic trading they're, they've, they've hired a bunch of, uh, you know, former rocket scientists, you know, that used to actually build, rockets like they took those brains and they they put them into things like uh the black shoals i think actually black shoals um one of those guys actually worked at goldman so the black shoals uh options pricing model came out of goldman which is effectively a way to uh mathematically model with certain assumptions um but you're you're basically trying to come up with a objective pricing function for options which account uh, by by accounting for a couple of factors that were previously not really well understood. Uh, and what you do is you effectively put in uh, the current uh, quote unquote risk free interest rate, which is typically the US Treasury. Uh, and then you look at the maturity like length of the option. Uh, and then you have all these like theta functions, like, okay, like as you get closer to the strike price, there's less probability of this particular thing striking based on its current price, based on a certain normal distribution of walking a, a price up and down. I'm sorry if this is not making any sense. It's, we're basically doing radio right now. So you kind of need to look at like stuff on a blackboard, frankly, to, get an idea of how this works, but that sort of thing, like it just didn't exist in the fifties. Like there was like options were not really, nobody did that. Like there were, I think they had warrants. That was the rough equivalent back then, but it was not really super common and that stuff has exploded. And so all this stuff is just, it's just a symptom of a larger, in my opinion, it's mainly a problem that like just the financial like fire economy has gotten so big and it's, it's not, I think a good use of uh, human capital, but I, I should hold my opinions for later. But um, I forgot how we got onto this. This was a, uh, it's just the, like, yeah, as the, as the history of the company, like has like grown and, and gone on in time, I think the company has gotten much more complicated and it, it correlates directly with the complexity of the financial system. Uh, more so than the complexity of the economy. Cause I think the financial system has gotten more grotesque and more complex versus the economy. I think the share of the economy going to finance has grown faster than 
um, well, I should say the the financial sector has grown faster than the the average like GDP of the country, and the, and that equates to a larger share of GDP, and I think that's explanatory of a lot of Goldman's growth. And what have what what have what were all the particulars of you know the the sixties versus seventies versus eighties versus nineties? I don't know, but I think it, it again it corresponds to like the eighties. There'd be you know a bunch of uh, leverage buyouts in the seventies. I don't know <laughs> what were they doing like conglomerates or something. Um, the nineties definitely was a time of globalization. So you see the stuff that Hans was talking about where they're going global, uh, the tech thing, the two thousands, it was sort of about like these goofy, um, mortgage securities. Uh, we're going to eliminate risk by bundling things into these tranches of, uh, risky assets when they're bundled together, they don't become risky for some reason because they're uncorrelated. Uh, and then now I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're doing. Damage control. <laughs> um, I don't know if they've been doing it for the past 10 years. That's all that different. I guess writing books. Yeah. I mean, Goldman, uh, by their own history, they uh, they were already actually fairly globalized, uh, be, you know, even at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, they had relationships with firms and capitals in Europe, uh, and they were mostly, you know, focused on a lot of sort of trade business, letters of credit, arbitrage, underwriting, shipping exchange, uh, currency exchange, this sort of stuff. Uh, and the investment banking business grew uh, largely because a lot of their clients who were involved actually in the retail business or the trading business needed larger capital outlays for investment in warehouses, uh, building out new private docks, uh, acquiring ships, uh, acquiring you know lines of credit for uh, you know, payroll, or all, all this sort of stuff. And this is where the investment side of Goldman really gets going. This is also why Goldman is so integrated into New York. Uh, at the time, you know, New York really was at the center of global trade, physically and financially. Physically now, not so much. At the time, though, physically and financially, be, you know, due to limitations of communication technology, you needed to be where the physical trade was if you wanted to actually participate in a lot of the financialization. Because just as then, as is now, uh, a lot of iBanking is really, as Adam was saying, face-to-face -face client stuff. You really are a salesman to an extent. There are technical levels of, you know, how do you actually, how do you structure the investment? How do you structure your outlays? How do you, you know, are they a worthy investment? But a lot of it is, then and now, the, mechanism, the primary mechanisms of investment banking are just client-facing stuff. It's being a salesman. It's selling people on taking your investment and figuring out what kind of people you're giving your money to. 
so this is kind of how Goldman gets going, and they get involved with uh, uh, some like sort of public transactions. A Sears, you know, Sears is uh, is one of Goldman's early babies, actually, in the market, and so was General Cigar back in the day. And um, they had these concepts of like introducing the company's value on earning power rather than just the physical assets of a company. This is, you know, this is one of the uh, many debates to this day in the financial sector. There's all these different methodologies for how you actually value a company. Do you value it by its earnings? Do you value it by its EBITDA? Do you value it by its physical assets? How do you actually gauge those physical assets? Are they depreciating assets? You know, do you gauge a company by its productivity? You know, there's all these elements for how do you gauge a company? And Goldman was trying to move towards more of a earning power narrative. Uh, you can see this as would benefit them though, because if you can say that a company is valued by its earning power, then you can find ways to uh, create market conditions that can benefit the earning power of that company that's driving up the value of the company that you're invested in. So these sort of tactics go back a long ways. Um, and this is, you know, there's nothing new under the sun here, but uh, it's worth noting that you know, they've been doing this for over 100 years, just as most investment banking groups and most investment companies or partnerships have been doing this for over 100 years in the United States. It's just a fact of life. Um, there's always, at some level, some percentage of scam going on in the economy. And sometimes the scam works out well for everybody. And sometimes a lot of people lose a lot of money. Uh, and so far, that has just been the nature of the American economy since uh, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and to an extent, for several hundred years, with particularly with like land speculation, uh, was actually, you know, historically uh, America's great failing often. And uh, ironically, land speculation was came back in fashion in 2008 uh, after, you know, having basically become uh, almost like an artifact uh, at that point. People you know, didn't even think of land speculation anymore. Um, so eventually, you know, so Goldman kind of gets involved with a lot of these underwriting activities, and this becomes one of their primary business models their, on their iBanking side. It's just underwriting. And they get very good at it, and they create whole specialty teams for valuing companies. Um, and Goldman, you know, actually is somewhat involved in the 20s and 30s in the run-up to the Great Depression. And um, there's a couple apocryphal stories. I mean, the main one that gets mentioned, I think, by Tybee in one of his kind of infamous articles about Goldman um, were the um, uh, Blue Ridge and Shenandoah Trust scandals. Uh, and this was actually part of the Goldman trading division. And, you know, it was a situation where they uh, they were issuing pieces for these issuing pieces of uh, of shares for these companies they were heavily invested in. And they bought all the shares and they helped drive up the value and then they dumped. And this was, of course, going on pretty heavily in the wider economy. Any honest reading of some of the financial activity in the late 20s would indicate that this is actually extremely common. 
And this was extremely common in Europe as well. A lot of uh, sort of grotesque financial speculation, a lot of pump, we call them now pump and dump schemes. Um, and Goldman, uh, of course, participated in this as everybody did. Uh, now, they managed to survive fairly well. And they sort of uh, went into a little period of decline for for a uh, for a time after the crash um, and the trading division I believe effectively went bankrupt or was nearly wiped out and they had to uh, rely back on the investment banking side and the commercial uh, exchange and brokerage side um, and of course, you have also uh, a lot of family dynamics because Goldman started as a his families and this partnership, and there was a lot of passing the torch. And uh, eventually, you have this guy named Sidney Weinberg uh, who takes over the company, and he's the first guy to kind of take it out of family hands. So Goldman, you know, goes through this first phase of its life from you know the 1860s to the great the uh, the crash in the Great Depression. Uh, Weinberg was also the first of the the sort of the Jew operators that started to cultivate the political relationship with the institution. I mean, he was involved with both the FDR campaign, um, Eisenhower and Johnson. Yeah, he was a personal advisor to LBJ. I think LBJ called him at, at several points uh, for for financial and yeah, economic his nickname, advice. I think his nickname was like the politician. Yeah, yeah. You know, so Goldman becomes, you know, ironically, Goldman actually becomes a major uh, player by allowing its trading division to crash um, and by moving out of being a sort of niche, um, uh, you know, early idea of a banking conglomerate. Uh, owned by a group of families with you know tight connections to each other, and now moving into a more public-facing, open role, uh, still you know very much controlled by the kind of people that Mr. Weinberg comes from, um, but changing at the time. And it's interesting. Goldman actually gets involved in a lot of strange schemes, including. Uh, securing financing for World War II in the Korean War. And this is, of course, where a lot of their political connections come from. And Vietnam, too. Yeah. They were, they were very instrumental in being able to do, help, like, rationalize the necessary state budget sort of programs uh, for the spending for the Vietnam War under Johnson. They also become the um, lead advisor to Ford's IPO in 1956. Now, this is this is a this is a very seminal moment for um, for Goldman because the Ford IPO was like this coveted prize that Wall Street had wanted for a long time taking the company out of the hands of the Ford family effectively and, you know, sort of opening it up to more shares of ownership, opening it up to outside influence 
and turning Ford into sort of an institution of you know the American production scheme rather than just a company in the economy. And uh, Weinberg was the guy that made that happen. This was, and this is where Goldman really starts to show its strength as an as an investment banking operation. Um, and they were sort of relying on a lot of the techniques they had crafted in the, the 1910s and the 20s in you know, figuring out how exactly to structure their investment operations, how to extract as much value as possible from them, uh, and how to grow the influence uh, of the firm. And uh, Goldman kind of becomes at this time as well the probably the most one of the most powerful uh, uh, traders on Wall Street, particularly uh, in equity sales and, and trading capabilities for various debt products. They become a major major player uh, and they've you know they really recover from the crash as the fastest growing firm on wall street now of course this wasn't the end and uh they had to kind of come up with new ideas for new markets to invest in because you know, by the mid-60s, it had become apparent to pretty much everybody that um, the United States was really peaking. I think in Henry, I think uh, it was Nixon who said something like, you know, America peaked in, in 1969 or something like that. You know, like, he, he, you know, he, Nick, Nixon had... Many people realized, have said that. I've said that. Yeah, that, that Nixon realized... Uh, during his time as the president that, you know, the United States had really uh, already hit its zenith and was actually sort of uh, coming down. Uh, and well, it certainly looked like that in the seventies. And, and in hindsight, it was pretty prescient. And I think that he, America made a, the closing of the frontiers. Yeah. And Nixon on. made a lot of economic moves that were actually based on this foundational theory and including the, um, uh, you know, removing the peg of the dollar to gold was actually, in Nixon's mind, uh, a necessary move to account for the waning uh, potential of the United States. And, you know, his idea was to sort of reorient America back towards the economy it sort of had in uh, the 18, you know, the 1890s to the 1910s, which is sort of a, a big player, very industrial, uh, and very much focused on outlaying for new growth opportunities. And that was why, you know, removing the dollar from gold and trying to peel away from the global market and, and, uh, and trying to create these peace initiatives so we didn't have to have the military everywhere. And you kind of see Nixon's formulation there and everybody is sort of at the time is also coming up with new ideas about how to invest in new markets because Goldman realizes that uh, the industrial economy uh, was kind of you know with the Ford IPO and everything else it was actually sort of coming to an end America's industrial potential had peaked uh, now you could say some of that was intentional but it was the writing on the wall from their point of view 
and they were trying to financialize and extract as much value as they could from the existing industrial institutions, but that was it. Uh, and so Goldman actually shifts towards real estate, interestingly, in the 1960s. And in fact, the real estate department is created, is actually formalized in 1969. And the primary focus of, of this is the expansion of residential real estate, uh, commercial office real estate, and some investments in real estate investment trusts, which is everything from warehouses to railroad facilities to uh, you know, sort of all kinds of grocery chain distribution centers, all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, Goldman really wanted to get into the broad real estate market because it was the new growth opportunity. It was shifting away from, you know, pouring money into the existing industrial institutions and let's build out something new. And, and uh, in this case, it was real estate schemes and property speculation effectively. Um, and Goldman also saw an opportunity to go international. So, you know, they, the, their big gro international growth period was in the 90s. But they had already moved towards that, um, arguably in the 70s, which is when the London, Tokyo, and Zurich offices are, uh, are created. And he, at this point, you can kind of see Goldman's uh, – wider entanglement with the power structure of sort of uh, the West and NATO aligned states in, in the Cold War. You know, it, it is playing the role that all the other major banks in the United States played in that it's trying to uh, integrate capital markets between uh, uh, the West, you know, the Western allies to more effectively manage their economies together. This was particularly you know, Goldman. Well, they were right there at the beginning of NATO. Yeah. Eisenhower. Yeah. I mean, they weren't as big, from my understanding, I mean, they weren't that significant as they became in like the 80s, but they were, they were present with the, the early formation of the post-Bretton Woods uh, financial order, imperial yeah. financial order. Um, you know, it's interesting, too. Goldman uh, was the first company in the history of the United States to issue a, a commercial paper for a state-owned electric utility in a foreign country. And that was uh, the electric utility for France in, in the 74. So you can see sort of the wider, you know, Goldman's becoming so heavily involved in a lot of major investment opportunities and in some of these schemes and also playing a role of sort of a state financer, war financer. Uh, Weinberg's very integrated with many political figures. And by the, by the late 70s, you really have the, uh, the origins of the Goldman we know today, where it has become this uh, centrally focused, extremely politically connected, entity that has both informal, formal, and actual financial ties to governments. 
this gives it an extra, this is an extraordinary amount of power and it would explain how Goldman got to the point where it is where multiple treasury secretaries and the you know the head of the SEC and various other bureaucracies in Washington are just former Goldman execs former Goldman partners it you know they are actually an important node in managing the American economy and the Ameri- I guess the American empire. Uh, and you, you know, this was done slowly over time. And it was, it was done as sort of a side project, you know, alongside a lot of their, their equities business, their trading businesses, their investment businesses, their, you know, all this other stuff. They have these opportunities here and there where they build connections and, so, you know, pays off in massive dividends year, years down the line. Um, I don't know if you have anything to chip in there, Adam. Yeah, well, one of the we talked about Hank Paulson a little bit before, but one of the quotes that I remember him, I think he might have actually been quoting someone else, but I remember him saying it also was that they at Goldman want to be long term greedy as opposed to short term, and I think that what you illustrated with the relationship building is indicative of that philosophy whereby there may not be an immediate payoff, but you definitely are going to have opportunities down the road by having political influence and access to information, uh, insider information, one might argue, uh, and direct influence, frankly, of where markets are going to go. And so I think that is um, kind of kind of one of their core competencies, frankly, is that they have such a broad network that they are, in effect, able to see where the markets are going to go and make very prescient to the outside world uh, bets that are very lucrative. One of the things that uh, this book that I was mentioning about why I left Goldman Sachs by Greg Smith pointed out, and again, I, I thought it was an okay book for just explaining how the inner workings of the company works. I thought it was a poor book in terms of explaining why there's such a uh, evil institution. And I'm not saying they're not or, or that they are. It's just there was very little substance in the book regarding that. It was just more focused on how the company works um, just as a normal bank might, but in a way that also is probably more effective than most banks. And the uh, the thing that he pointed out was that a lot of the uh, Goldman alums that went on to found investment firms such as hedge funds that are directly engaged in making speculative bets on the financial markets, what happened to them after they left was that they actually uh, performed as well or worse uh, in some cases than the benchmarks of uh, you know the the broad benchmarks that most investors will look to as an indicator of what is expected to be average or the median expectations of a financial investor, such as the S and P 500. Um, there's other broad indices that are also well looked at, but the S and P is probably the most well known. And uh, one of the reasons that happens is that he said that the Goldman alums no longer being part of Goldman Sachs and seeing, uh, as he termed it, all the deal flow, which is what the big institutions are actually betting on without being able to know that beforehand, you effectively can't 
bet in front of that. You can't front run as the term goes. So if you know that Warren Buffett is going to be buying, there's actually a case where this actually might've been uh, something that Goldman got in trouble for uh, surrounding the Raj, Roger Rotnam Galleon fund. Uh, I don't remember the details, but you can look it up on Wikipedia, but it's uh, I do remember when this happened, there was a big uh, controversy around that guy as being a, an insider trader. Um, but for example, like uh, I think this is actually what happened. Warren Buffett wanted to buy a part of Goldman Sachs um, during the financial crisis, which he ended up doing. And, and so that guy knew about it and he was able to bet ahead by buying some Goldman shares. And then the shares went up when gold, uh, when Warren Buffett invested that sort of thing. So if you know about that, it doesn't have to be about Goldman Sachs, obviously it could be about any company, but if you know about that, if you're working at a bank like Goldman Sachs, you're able to bet very to other people seemingly presciently and make money on it. But if you're not having access to those big trades that are just coming in, but not executed yet, because you're not there anymore, uh, you're not going to be able to perform. And, and apparently that's actually what happens. And so it, it, it just illustrates again how a company like this makes money. It, a lot of it is, yes, they're, they're just doing the mechanics of client service. But a lot of it, and this is also, I think, what happened over time, they, they became less client-centric. And this is sort of the thesis of, or the, the attempted thesis of what Greg Smith was trying to say, was that the bank was less about helping clients. It was just more about making money for itself. It was always about making money for itself. Uh, I mean, any business really, if it's going to survive, uh, typically ends up having that attitude bottom line. Um, but some businesses do still try to emphasize, well, we still need to make the clients happy because sort of like what Paulson is saying, like, if we don't do that, we're not going to be in business. Uh, but also some of them also feel like that's their moral right or moral obligation to do that. And I, th I do think some businesses behave like that. Typically they're not the mega corpse because this, the, the psychopaths end up we, we weaseling their way into large companies um, at, at a certain point, typically after the founder leaves. But the, um, yeah, just the, the general contention of like having access to information, I think is a big part of how Goldman makes money. And I think they just bet on their own capital now, as opposed to just like betting on behalf of clients. Like they're, they're taking their own money and they're looking at what their clients are doing and then they might be making these sort of questionable bets. And that was possibly what some people were trying to get at when they were saying that they were betting against their clients. Um, I don't know exactly what was directly happening there, but it, it's hard to know because again, I do think there is something to the fact that it is a 46 or 44,000 employee company. They're not all going to know what the other uh, employees are going to be doing at any given moment. And so you're going to have disagreement amongst them. And so I think that is a legitimate thing that I'm sure happens in every organization, including Goldman. But I think, yes, the, the access to information, bottom line, because of their relationship building and because of their broad network is a competitive advantage at the end of the day. And is actually probably the biggest reason why the company is successful is because they just, they know what's going to happen before it does. And, um, that's actually not really useful <laughs> on a, in a broader sense to the economy. Because, and this is why insider trading is in theory illegal is that it actually is not rewarding genuine 
research or investigation or analysis. It's really just you have you happen to have a relationship that gives you a in many, you know, would see an, an unfair advantage and effectively it rewards, um, kind of corrupt, uh, relationships that don't, uh, don't necessarily incentivize sharing information, but rather hoarding information and limiting access to things. And also, and it, it, it sort of encourages deception, uh, and indirectly. And so that's why it's generally considered, um, harmful. And so I, I have a question. Yeah. I was curious what um, types of wild animals do you think that we should feed them to? <laughs> oh. Um, I, I think lions are a good choice, but um, I think dogs are probably a little bit more fitting. Usually, I think in like lions, I feel like you should probably. I think, I think, pig, I think pigs would, uh, would, pigs? Would, yeah. would, would do a yeah, good job. Yeah, no. Well, pigs, you the problem their jaw is, muscles though, are to, capable like, of chewing through bone. So yeah, but you have to you have to already have executed them first. No, they eat, they eat people the... alive if they're thrown in. They do, but I mean, I guess if you like tied, it's them actually down more humiliating, I think, to be eaten by a pig than a lion. It, it, you're right. You're right. That's a good point. Yeah, it is. It is more humiliating. Yeah, because yeah, people don't really think. And also, pigs. um. You know, I'm sure you're familiar, Nick, but uh, the name Goldman Sachs is uh, an ethnic name, and they don't typically or traditionally consume pig. And so, that's true. That that's would be true. very doubly ironic um, if they are themselves consumed. Yeah, I, I think I, I yeah, I'm gonna have to agree with you there, Adam. I think feeding them to pigs is probably the best way to go about it. <laughs> Domesticated or wild, I'm not sure, but you know, yeah. wild, wild boars are pretty ferocious. So, well, my understanding is it doesn't really take very long for a domesticated pig to revert back to yeah, basically being a wild boar. Um, like it doesn't take multiple generations. I, I think I've heard that. I don't know. Maybe this is not true. Someone can tell me if I'm wrong about this. But I've heard that domesticated pigs released into the wild. Uh, if they survive in the wild, are actually able to they they have started to grow tusks like that. Yeah. Is, that I'm an observed phenomenon. I, I mean, maybe that's yeah. not true. Yeah, no, they're 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 quite plentiful in places like Texas, where you're allowed to actually hunt them. I think without a uh, permit or license, because they're considered a uh, yeah ge- general nuisance. That, that's the a Ted. That's the the nudes rolling around like a <laughs> chopper fucking. Wasting pigs with an M60. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I know he hunts deer, but yeah, he's got his own land. Um. So, Hans, uh, I don't know if that answered any of your your questions. I I don't think you're asking questions. You're just asking me if I had a thought. But yeah, I wanted um, I wanted you to chip in. Um. Yeah. I mean, we can kind of wrap up the, the history here. Um. You know, the '80s. I, I do know more about the 80s. I mean, my, yeah, my understanding a, of like the 1800s is like zero, but like yeah, the, well, the 80s is particularly yeah. complicated in American banking and uh, probably the most in, one of the most infamous periods. Uh, there's a there's a great book by Jim Grant called Money the Mind, which talks about this time. And 
You know, what for they, those not the familiar, that, he's the one who kind of looks like uh, E. Michael Jones, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he, he, is, he wears he a bow tie. E. Michael Jones doppelganger. Yeah. yeah, he does. He looks a lot like E. Michael Jones. Um, a little bit. He's the he's, wasp variant. Of he's a little Jones. younger, and he's uh, his haircut's a little bit more. Um, I don't know. Let's just say uh, schoolboyish. But he, uh, yeah, I can see what you mean. Definitely, the bow tie is probably the thread there that you could easily glom yeah I, I i had some things going on so i actually missed a lot of your guys' conversation unfortunately but well, i was hoping you'd actually be here for some of this because i wanted to continue our conversation which you're having prior to recording uh you know about a week ago when we were talking about the show idea and uh get into the role of uh banking and all that so yeah so i've been reading a book relevant to this lately um I've been reading David Graeber's book, uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> it's an absolute... I, I I actually highly recommend that. I don't know. I'm sure it's good. Uh, it's, you know, I, I'm not going to do the caveats myself, but, like, you can figure out where, like, someone like David Graeber is coming from. He died recently. I mentioned to him, actually, rec- I've been reading a few of his books, but this is his, definitely his most... Um, I don't know. It, it's It's... In many ways, he's like my second favorite anthropologist, at least contemporary anthropologist. Like I said, he did just die, but um, he's not—he's not quite as good as James LaFond. But because someone like David Graeber thought that you had to like go to like Micronesia or or like Madagascar or something to observe primitive life forms, but uh, you don't actually have to do that. But you do get, I guess, some interesting insights from it. Uh, he was an anthropologist and. So he puts the sort of the economic history in it, but he absolutely wrecks certain liberal myths about the origins of money and debt. Uh, But the origins of money I found to be very interesting because uh, the liberal mythology regarding the origins of money is that it arises out of a barter system. And I've always found that to be like just a technical that too. He does a really good job of demonstrating the type of the type of liberal nonsense that that is. But what what, what, is, role, what is his what is his the view of the origin of money? Well, the the or, origin of money. I mean, it's money representing both a it exi- I mean, like it's not entirely heterodox in a certain sense. Other people have made the observation too, but that money exists as a, basically a a token of debt or as a commodity or as both. Yeah. Yeah. It's a claim on, on future labor or services from others. But it gets more complicated than that because when you look at the role of, I guess you would say like money, something that we the the problem is like we living in post liberal like post capitalist society tend to project a lot onto and to and both onto antiquity and to you know the primitive primitive world but i would say without like spoiling it or like going i mean it could be a whole show in of itself but it interestingly dovetails a lot with the book i had mentioned uh when we were talking to james lafon recently about the origins of agriculture uh, those two books go together very well. 
because they both are addressing a similar type of misconception, assumption, or projection uh, from moderns. And they they approach it in a, in a similar way. Uh, namely, that like an agrarian, uh, and, and especially like how they address some of the, the ancient states that we know the most about. Uh, I mean, cuneiform, for example, like the, so much of it is a, it's like accounting records, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. what we know about it, right? Yeah. It's accounting records. But one of the things I will say, one of the things I found the most interesting uh, was the role of, of taxation uh, from a state and like what, what the purpose of taxation really is. And it contrary to like the assumption, well, it's just like, you know, well, you just gotta, it's just the shakedown. It's like, well, like if the state already controls a given area, for example, and especially back when you have like precious metals as money as the, the basis of like a commodity money. Well, like why wouldn't they just take over the gold mine and just like take all of the gold? It's, it's similar to like how the grain slave system works where it's about getting people into the system. Uh, I, again, I, I would say I highly recommend it, but I don't think, um, my, my opinion, you asked about like banking, uh, I don't really see the purpose of banking per se outside of like international trade. I don't know why you would like need banking in any other context than that. Can you explain to me why? Well, okay. The, the, the basic concept is that there are resources just like kind of what money is that are accumulated that are idle and if you have an intermediary that connects those with surplus to those with an opportunity to actually take that those resources and turn those resources into more resources then you want to be able to connect them so an example would be you have, and I'm just making this up, but um, you could read any like economics 101 text and it'll explain like the basis of, of like banking and what it, what it means. Um, if you have a, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an industry. Yeah. Okay. Cars. I know cars. So if you have, if you have the desire to transport things, um, well, you need some kind of mechanism. Well, you can use a horse and buggy. Uh, you can use human labor, all of which are relatively slow and uh, time consuming, which are the same thing, uh, but also energy intensive. If actually you think about how long it takes and how much energy you have to feed these particular uh, instruments of locomotion. Uh, and then sometimes they, they get tired and they rebel or they don't want to do what they're told. So a car is kind of nice. So how do you actually build a car company? Well, takes a lot of capital as it turns out it takes a lot of land takes a lot of steel takes a lot of rubber takes a lot of labor you got to pay these people and well before you sell your first car you have to build a factory and you have to buy all this ore and you have to melt it down which takes a lot of coal and a lot of energy inputs and a lot of heat and you got to have rail cars that move these things you got to have thousands of workers that help you 
build all this stuff and then work in the assembly plant and come to work on time and you got to hire foremans and Pinkerton guards to beat them up when they start complaining. Uh, so there's just a, a, a massive operation. So we talked about Ford going public, right? So what, what do they do? Well, they raise money uh, and you can do that in different ways. You could uh, raise money by going into debt. That's the traditional way. Uh, you take a loan from a particular bank or you have an investment bank organize a bond and a bond goes out and it is bought by multiple investors. And so what, what it is, is they can see that you as an entrepreneur are able to take all these disparate resources. They're kind of just sitting there. There's, you know, a bunch of people that on their own devices, they're not Henry Ford. They're not going to come up with a car, but if Henry Ford tells them how to do a particular small task and he tells another thousand other people like that to do another particular task, eventually you, you get a model T and you need money though to start all that. But the investors see that Henry Ford, well, he made his own car in his basement that had to take a sledgehammer and break the wall down so he can get his quadricycle out at four in the morning. True story. This guy's got something. He's, he's special. He's got, he's got what it takes to actually build something interesting. So we're going to take a chance on him. We're going to make a bet, but in order to be compensated for taking that chance, we're going to ask you that for every hundred dollars, we give you, you're going to give us 110 back, you know, for, cause you know, you might go broke, you might go bankrupt. You might not be able to give us anything back. So we want to be able to be compensated for the risk we're taking. So that's why there's an interest rate on bonds. The other way to do it is equity issuance, which is what they did apparently in the 1956. They went to the public stock market and said, okay, you as anybody, average American or anybody outside of America for that matter, can buy a percentage of the Ford motor company. And in doing so, you have, actually, we have shareholders meetings and we have proportional voting. And you have a say, actually, as to how the company is, is run, not on a day-to-day -day basis, but, you know, on an annual basis or whenever when we have elections, you can elect indirectly who decides those day-to-day -day decisions. Uh, and then in return, you own this company. If we ever have to sell to somebody else, you get compensated for that legally. Uh, and in order to get uh, paid periodically, we might have a dividend, which is paid out, you know, on an annual or quarterly basis, whatever they decide. Uh, and so that's how financial capitalism works. It connects people that have iron ore and uh, yeah, so spare time and labor very, and that organizes them together to and incentivizes them to work is together. It's ultimately political because really what you've just described is the thing that liberals and capitalists like to do is they like to pretend that there's some kind of form of organization or activity, human activity that is outside of in in theory is like outside of politics this is the whole liberal conceit right that there's economic there's an economic sphere and that this is independent from the political but all you've described is just a way of controlling and organizing and directing labor and resources to a project correct and to me, like a bank, like, and you look at, I, I'm not an expert on history of banking. I do know that I know a little bit about, uh, pre pre modern banking systems, a little bit about what took place in, um, in Italy, um, and during the Renaissance, but well, yeah, the term, my mind, term bank comes from the Italian word banca, which I think means bench. And they would actually meet and, uh, 
do their little calculations for these little loans that I think people are coming up with. Right. And if you look at, and uh, Graber's book's good on this too, because when you look on the subject of like of money and you go back to the, what we can tell about the ancient world is that like these types of, the types of relationships of debt and credit um, and indebtedness, they don't require money to do. It's just like you have a ledger of it, right? You don't necessarily need, you don't need a place like when precious metal was a big thing in like the early days of capitalism, as far as a, a trade, I mean, yes, it was used in the, in the ancient world as well. And like Roman uh, currency has shown up in the Indian subcontinent, et cetera. But that's usually because like the reason the precious metal, from my understanding, the reason precious metal would have been useful in that kind of context was because it was something that had some value in of itself. So when it's now going outside of the system, it could be valuable to someone who, you know, to foreigners, to people of different system. Generally speaking, money is the thing that is recognized by your, by the state. It's how you settle with the state. And I know that in the Hellenic world, uh, there weren't, for example, taxes. That wasn't a, that wasn't a form that this took place, but you would, there was a currency insofar as like the state would levy like fines or it would levy, uh, you know, imports, et cetera, that the, there would be things that you would pay the state for, you know, if you've either fucked up or just if you want to do a certain kind of merchant activity. But I, there's something about like modern banking and modern finance that, I mean, I'll admit like it is, I, I think you mentioned earlier, like Matt Taibbi writing that article about the vampire squid, mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs. It's like, well, he didn't really understand the system and he was trying to understand it. I think most people don't understand. I mean, it's not I think. I mean, most people do not understand the system. Even people who are in the system with a relatively substantial amount of money, oftentimes they pay other people who tell them that they understand the system. Mm -hmm. Well, arguably the financial financial crisis happened because those in tasked with understanding it actually didn't even understand (laughs) the full extent of what they were doing. I mean, that's certainly... Uh, I mean, these people, like, just from a simple perspective to me, it's just like these people are parasites. Whether or not they're, like, our racial enemies or not uh, is ultimately beside the point when it comes down to the concept of, like, finance and banking. Well, define, define, and look, I I don't necessarily disagree, but you asked me, like, what does a bank do? And I think that's kind of its its idea. But define to me, uh, well, you don't have to define what a parasite is. I think everybody knows what that is. But why is banking in general parasitic or is it particular aspects of it that you find parasitic? It's the relationship that this kind of power has to the state to organized violence and their ability to be immune from the consequences. Mm. It, it's, you know, some countries actually do punish bankers. Yeah, Iceland has done that. Switzerland used to do that. Yeah, yeah, I know it happened in Iceland. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, well, the Catholic Church, uh, you know, say what you want about the Catholic Church, but uh, usury was forbidden. I mean, there were loopholes that were found, but it was forbidden. I mean, this is not they've managed. We've gotten to the point where it's like, oh, it's like self-evident, Goy. Like you pay you pay more for money for money. Now you pay for the rest of your life. 
you know, and in the past, like these types of situations are, I mean, debt is just, it's the, it's the basis of subjugation, really. I mean, as a, and especially like you go back to the origins of agriculture, it's the idea that someone has, that you owe to someone else like your life for in perpetuity is well, well like okay I, I get what you're asking you're getting at but if you gave me a hundred dollars would, wouldn't you expect it back so i can um i don't borrow or loan money to friends well okay sometimes. i'm just using myself as an example but let's say yeah, actually no, some guy this, down no, the street the real answer like yeah. i don't do that because it's corrupting of of relations and like some, I will give, like there have been times where I will give money to friends or I will like take money from friends that I need. But I, uh, that type, no, I like, I would not, I no. So what, what if it was a million dollars? Well, why do you have a million dollars to give me? If you have a million no, no, dollars no, to I give me. No, no, I said you gave me. Oh, I gave you? <laughs> yeah. If I had a million dollars, I wouldn't give you, give you a million dollars. I'd give you a million dollars. <laughs> no, of course you wouldn't. <laughs> Unless you can give me a million, you know, plus but back. But uh, yeah, a million's a lot of money. But would you give me a million dollars? If I had a million dollars to give you, you could have Why? Yeah, Why would you give it to me? Why not? What if, what if somebody else wanted that million? This is what I'm but getting you're, at. But you're there are friend. differences in opportunities, and I think they should be actually be prioritized. That's really the basis of why a financial system, in my mind, actually has a function to, to play because it, it incentivizes people to come up with good ideas versus bad ideas. It can be corrupt, no question about it, and I think corruption should be punished. But I, I want to be clear about what I define as corruption versus productive. Um, I think corruption is when you are not helping anyone else, yet you are extracting resources from someone i think that's wrong i think that's parasitic but i think people who have good ideas should just be given money okay but they're not always successful right yeah so you need so to what? also have accountability but you don't have accountability that. you What's can always that? declare bankruptcy well it's not like a bank's any different wait a minute wait a minute but that's arguably not accountable to somebody taking a loan and then losing their shirt and then they just declare bankruptcy and then they're off. What the about hook. the accountability of the lender? I mean, like if someone, if I'm mm-hmm. like, it, it, if you're going to give somebody money, like that's because you think that like the idea that you would give some money, somebody money cynically because you expect them to fail and you want them to be in debt to you. That's something that is. No, no, that, that's wrong. I, I agree with you on that. I think that's actually one of the things that um, is kind of creepy about banking like for example if you if you look at how um it's different now because the physical plant and equipment is actually not as relevant but one of the the great benefits as a banker was that if you loan somebody money they have to put up collateral and typically if it was a physical uh, capital investment hold hold on i'm going to end up agreeing with you on this particular aspect so let me finish please so if you had to let's say you're you know Henry Ford. Uh, and actually he did, he did go bankrupt in his first venture. Um, or he, at least he had to basically close his company, his first major company, at least, uh, from outside investors uh, who helped him get it started. But if you, uh, invest, 
or you loan money to a industrialist, like particularly to build a factory. And that industrialist basically is a bad manager or he just bad salesman or something like something goes wrong and he, he can't make money. He lo- he's losing money. You can actually seize that. That's typically how those loans are structured. The collateral is like the, the capital that is being constructed with that, that money. You can seize those assets and then have some basically guarantee that you're not going to lose all your money. Uh, and then you could find some other manager who's better to then take that over. And it's actually, it's a relatively low risk investment compared to some of the stuff today where it's like you're investing in some software company and it's like, well, there's nothing to seize. I mean, they're just people and you know, you, well, in some (laughs) historical settings, you could seize these people, but not anymore. Well, you would seize their daughters. (laughs) <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. 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 So that yeah. that's kind of a creepy thing like where You see Adam, there's a reason that people have hated Jews for centuries. I mean, millennia. And it's the thing is is like why is a banker, why is a capitalist, a somebody, why is a money man, a hook-nosed money man in any position to judge the viability of an engineering project? Uh that uh that that is a that's a, a good question. Um in some cases they're not. And they what cases prob- are they? Um, well, I think there's like, you know, home mortgages, for example, are pretty basic to understand. <laughs> there's pretty well understood financial models. And that's where their commercial banks are typically engaged. But well, for, the model is like, yeah. how, how much will this grain slave, what is this grain slave's capacity to pay me back yeah. to give me more right. of their blood? Yeah. How much can I squeeze from this? Okay. That's the, th- that's the calculus. I okay. mean, cause what we're talking about, like back to the, the main point is like, we're talking about if you're, if you're dealing with a large scale industrial complicated civilization, the question is how do you allocate resources effectively so that, you know, projects that are beneficial to the common good are undertaken and like crackpot shit that will go nowhere doesn't get, you know, a bunch of uh, resources wasted on it. Like that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable question. Right. And it's a perfectly unreasonable answer to say that financiers are in a position to direct this kind of uh, production. Well, okay. So here, and I'm not trying to shill for banks, but I'm, I'm also hesitant to get rid of them wholesale because I think you could, you could ask that question about a bureaucrat just as much as a banker. And a, a banker is specialized, supposed to be specialized in analyzing successful investments versus unsuccessful investments. And because they do this all day, they should have some expert and they're, they're incentivized to like make money. They don't want to just see their loans, uh, fail. And then they have to end up seizing the assets. Like, you know, all those, uh, all those houses, for example, that went under in the financial crisis, the banks, they didn't really want to have to then become landlords. Yes, that sort of has evolved, you know, because BlackRock has started to like try to specialize in that. But the banks, they were like, I, I don't want this crap on my balance sheet. I'm, I'm going to try to unload it, do a short sale and, and foreclose it. They don't want their loans to go bad is all I'm getting at. So they have an incentive to actually invest well. And a bureaucrat should have an incentive to invest well. The problem with the bureaucrat is that they have a monopoly on violence. 
and they have actually less pressure put on them, I would argue, to do it well because they're in the biggest gang in town. They've got the military, so they can fuck it up and not get fired. Yeah, but a, a banker bank, has a lot of pressure put on out. him to do it well. That's and why competition and capitalism has the, produced the more wealth. The state are the ones who show up to evict you. you. Can you say it again? Sorry. I said the banks were bailed out, and when you don't pay your mortgage, it's the pigs of the state, armed goons of uh, the system, uh, who show up to evict you. Right. The, there's no separation here. Is my point? Like it's. The separation is a lie, and it's it's a lie in service of yeah. finance capital. That's a fair point, but do, do you also see them. how if you get rid of the banker and you replace it with, I don't know, what would you replace it with? I mean, I, I think the opportunities for corruption still exist is what I'm kind of getting at. You're going to well, have corrupt people in any system. And the question is, how do you structure the system to, can we both agree like mutually, like, and and I believe that you don't want corruption. Can you believe that I don't want corruption? No, we can agree on that. But you see, it's interesting that you say this because that's my point is that now you've gotten back to a question of political organization. The question you're asking is effectively like, what is the, what is the, Correct. Well, it's political Just economics. Correct. It's it's both, as you as you said, and I, I think what I'm saying is that you're back to the question of. Well, what is a just? What is the correct organization of power? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we discussed this Plato. I mean, it's this idea. I think that there's a lot more perversity, and especially like I haven't. I meant to. I was I was traveling, but I have a book. Um, by uh, a former Goldman Sachs executive. I, I don't know exactly her role. She worked there for like three years. Her name's no, Nomi Prinz. Yeah, I've read a little I, bit. I've heard of I've and, heard of that name. Yeah, yeah it, it's a, it's just a it's a political history of banking in America in the twentieth century and just the relationship between uh, finance capitalism and the you know not formal political system and you know. Uh, the, the revolving door and how the, how it how it works how power and money work in America and the problem my biggest well I have a lot of pro- problems with capitalism and liberalism but my biggest complaint is that it, what it does is it obfuscates and all this complexity that we're dealing with that is definitely something that most most people aren't going to understand. And a lot of people who work in the industry don't actually understand. The people who are trading mm-hmm. those derivatives, they didn't really understand what the fuck they were doing. Yeah, they and they don't they don't care, which I which I yeah, also yeah. think is troubling. And, and they don't I, have any yeah. social accountability. Like yes, it, I agree. It's, I agree. I agree. It's an it's an obfuscation of what is actually power, and it's political power and political organization. I don't accept the idea that there's like some role of like independent finance as like a healthy part of uh, social existence. I just I don't accept that. And when you look at antiquity, you didn't see that kind of thing there. Well, what, okay. So you're first of all, you're saying that it doesn't exist that there's independence, but then you're saying you, if yes. it did, you would not accept it. Or you I'm don't think there's it's a not role possible for it to exist. And okay, well, that's a different theory. argument that you don't accept it in theory. Um, I'm saying it's a lie, is what I'm saying. I'm well, saying that, that okay. it's, they're they're participating in okay. power and politics. All right, but but don't you think that there are degrees of independence? I mean, there's got to be some. Well, delineation. yeah, there's degrees of independence because there's degrees of plausible deniability. 
it's the same reason that like the the major oligarchs are out of the public view and instead you have elected puppets who carry out the day-to-day functions of the system because they're the ones who when shit goes wrong as it always does Mm -hmm. they're the ones who get blamed and the real powers are out of the picture altogether even though they're the ones who you know who are pulling the strings okay so so we're we're speaking abstractly let's let's speak a little more concretely here and Look, I, I, I can, if you ask me to critique our current uh, economic system, I'm happy to go on about that. Um, however, I also think that it is not the worst system in the world, uh, nor is it necessarily the best, um, but I think we could do worse. And I think it's interesting that we, and we talked about this, Nick, you and I separately, uh, or um, separate from the show, a week ago or so about China. And I think that's an interesting mm-hmm. alternative model. And yeah. I, we've talked about it a little bit before in our Tiananmen show about what the transition from uh, the Mao era to the Deng era was like and sort of you know what the students were actually protesting. But it was, um, I think, illustrative of how a different society and a different different political economic system functions to different ends and you know right now they're not really communist i think most people would agree with that but they're also not capitalist either it's sort of a hybrid weird chinese entity and it's a form uh, of state socialism um yeah I'd, I'd say it's more state capitalism frankly it it's uh it has socialist characteristics definitely but there's heavy emphasis on making money. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, it's true. There's yeah, it's and there's like, a yeah. there's a lot of uh consumer culture that's coming to China. Consume yeah. some product and yeah. Um, you know, there there's yes, like there it has moved past the Maoist era. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say something I forgot, but um the, the Chinese, I, 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 I admire China a lot. I, I actually think they've achieved tremendously um, in the past, um, I don't know, I mean, you could say 100 years. but um, I, I think it's the, interesting. Oh, let me say this. I, I think it's really interesting from a sort of ideological, religious, political perspective that America, a country that was founded by debt slaves, a combination of debt slaves and people fleeing debt slavery the the most ideologically committed to this like fucking sacrosanct idea of like like paying this cap religious capitalist ideology where it's like gotta pay your debts you know you should pay your debts I mean that's it's the, the oral thing to do and ultimately that's that's the type of question you're dealing with like talking about a lot of complexity we're talking about how you organize in industrial society uh these really sophisticated and hard hard to understand financial instruments that have been created over the and especially now with i mean globalization things are just things are very complicated and you have all of this and it's but when you come back to the root of it, you have to, you make a, a fundamental moral judgment as this is where, where you begin with. And the American is really bizarre 
and that they have this really particular type of Stockholm syndrome that I think is, it's really, I think the root of why we're so fucked because they identify with the system that oppresses them. I mean, to be, to be very clear, it's they, there's a moral identification with the user and the exploiter. And I don't know if it's like just this, maybe this memory of slavery that like people, they, you know, it's like a uh, Spengler referred to, uh, communism as the the capitalism of the proletariat it's kind of like america's america the american idea of like debt slavery of debt is like debt is the the it's the potential like you could be the the potential creditor and like that's what you should aspire to rather than to create a pro-social order a society which we do not live in i don't think you can have anything that you could call a society under finance capitalism because the basis of human relations is fundamentally exploitation. Well, um, okay. So other than I, I know your ideal model, like give me a current country that you, uh, you find that this isn't true where there's the, the basis of society is not exploitation, I guess, as you phrase it. I don't really think that there are like, I, there may be societies out there um, that may exist in far-flung places in the world, but I mean, we we live under a global order at this point. Yes, and just different degrees of, as to where you go. It's just different degrees, but I I think that I I don't know. I mean, it's you can say it's an idealistic frame, and of course it is. But it's like you should yeah. the organization of of production of law justice. It should be done for the common good of the people. That should be the the lens by which you evaluate all of these things. Okay, let's. Um, we're maybe going off topic here, but I guess it's of course we are. it's a little. And bit. Hans left anyways, so yeah, he um, it's up he, for debate how much of this we include. But he well, he, let's he, needed, continue. he needed to get ready for work tomorrow. But um, the uh, <laughs> we're he has got taxes to pay, right? <laughs> He's got debts. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Um well I'm trying to I'm trying to rein in my question here so it doesn't explode into like a, a tangent that gets too large, but uh, who who are the people? How do you define that? Does it include uh you know, a criminal? I mean, does it include somebody who's honestly harmful to society? I mean, how do you define who gets resources? Of in within that people, is it everybody equally, or is it is it deprioritized? Well, it's interesting. David Graeber talks about like the criminal and the language that we use to refer to the criminal, which is kind of interesting. I don't mean like about. a legal criminal. I mean somebody who's like hurting other people, like you know, unjustly, like just as a general like slur on their character. They're they're a criminal. They're a bad yeah. person. That's what I'm getting at. Well, obviously, they should be removed. Right. Okay, so they don't get resources. Okay, but how about everybody else? So, so let's take let's take another less obvious example. So, let's say you've got somebody who's uh, uh, I don't want to be cruel here, so I'm going to try to be a little bit more middle of the road. Let's say you've got somebody who's you know like a, just a normal guy. You know, you'd have a beer with him, whatever. You know, friendly and everything, but he's he's not coming up with the the next you know cure to cancer. Like he's just. Eh. 
you know, whatever. He's just a regular guy. He likes watching television and, you know, cracking a beer and, you know, whatever, having fun. That's fine. You know, that's most people, right? Then you got another guy or gal who's uh, really, you know, interested in biology and they, they figure out, you know, well, you know, like a... Uh, cancer. I mean, I, I think I understand what this stuff is and everybody else seems to be missing this one thing. I'm, I'm going to dedicate myself to figuring out how to, how to stop cancer. It's sort of an obvious maybe setup here, but should they get equal amounts of resources? Well, they should. Um, if, if, if you're a member of the tribe, you should be entitled to the basic. <laughs> oh, okay. Any tribe. Okay, like the tribe. Okay, not not the that tribe. tribe. Yeah. yeah. No, the I, the Volk. <laughs> the Volk. Let's say. Okay. Yeah. If you're a member of the Volk, then, well, as long as you're not uh, some kind of like reprobate, degenerate criminal who is, who should be cast out or removed, then yeah, you're in, you're entitled to. By virtue of being a member of the of the people like you are entitled to very basic. Um, okay. So they get, they get a minimum. Okay. Yeah. They, okay. But what but about, think, what about on top of that? Do you think maybe some think people should, should get more? I don't believe like material. I don't believe material wealth should necessarily be a reward. I mean, we we're talking about uh, this with LaFond, like, Kings historically, like great conquerors and kings, they usually kept nothing to themselves. No, I'm talking about resources. I'm talking about well, like you're talking uh, invest, about investment, investment resources. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, they should get what they need. Yeah, I mean, th this guy or gal. I mean, maybe they should get a laboratory. You know, maybe they should get some but, computers. But don't you, you know? think that that's a better to evaluate that? Well, that's the question. Yeah. How do you actually well, do it? That's what well, I'm getting I think at here. that I, I'll tell you what I. I think that it's better to evaluate that from a pro-social political perspective than it is from a from this this idea that like somehow people so like, who are self-interested so, right. uh, capitalists are going to like organically come across this because I mean you can think of all the other, all the things that were it doesn't produce capitalism doesn't produce results organically out of magic i mean it's just no no, no it, it mean, aligns of, it aligns incentives in a certain way and it, it produces things and it uh it has results uh, you know some might argue with you know the, the validity of that but it definitely has results um and it yeah, compares it differently to direct right? resources to the purpose of uh, imperialism, surveillance <laughs> technology, and exploitation. All right, all right, all right, Che Guevara. Uh, um, <laughs> come on. Um, it also produces. No, but really, that's what it does. I it mean, also, like, look, you know, produces look at, computers, cars, uh, airplanes. I mean, it's not just like you know, a lot of weapons times, a lot of, of that civilian technology. Ironically, a lot of the technology that's beneficial. I mean, look at the internet. The internet is a byproduct of military research. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, yeah. But all right. It's also a capitalist venture where people are trying to make money, and I, I'm just trying to be factual here. Like it. No, I, I get compare it. it to you know North Korea or even China or That's the Soviet it. Union. I mean, they they're coming up with you know like Bro, you concrete housing blocks and like. Life. 
I've actually thought a lot about Jusha, and I, I, I've concluded that it is... I think is, about Jusha every day. <laughs> I've gone through my Jusha phase, I'll be honest. <laughs> and it's, it's very appealing because it gives you a sense of independence and control. But here's my bottom line on it. It is not a system that can compete because it fundamentally... Uh, and I hate I hate admitting this, but it's not open enough. It doesn't have the ability to adapt and learn quickly enough because whether it's good or bad, it just is. We're in a war. We're in a war with everyone else. And, you know, yeah, sure, kumbaya, we shouldn't do that. But the reality is we're competing. And if you don't expose yourself to competition, you will eventually atrophy, just like an astronaut who's not exposed to gravity. You have to put yourself through the rigors of that. And sometimes it is, um, it, it encourages that the problem I have with Goldman Sachs, for example, is that it encourages people to fuck each other over for a buck. Whereas that wouldn't necessarily be rewarded in a different system. And they wouldn't do it because of that. And it, it, but it also encourages people to think really well, to drink hard. Maybe they're stressed out too much. Maybe that's why it's unhealthy. But at the end of the day, if you're locked in a competition over a long time period, you see what happened to the Soviet Union. You see what happened to China. They stagnated. And as brutal as capitalism is, it was able to organize more efficiently production and maybe the production was ill, ill prepared and it wasn't for social good, but it was able to beat these other systems to the point where they actually ended up having to adopt elements of capitalism. And maybe there's a, there's a better hybrid. And I've always sort of like, I think implied that I'm more open to a hybrid model where both schools, you know, have something to say, but I, um, I don't think giving just, you know, the, the DMV, uh, the, the, all the power to decide, uh, is, is a good idea. I think you do need to have elements of, uh, competition and it, cause I think it, it basically just like a, a sports league, you're going to have better teams and members of those teams. If actually you're engaged in, in combat, I mean, in economic combat, whatever it is, intellectual combat, you got to have, um, you got to have some dynamism. So well, you can have competition in order to create a an order. I mean, like you go back to Plato, like the the whole concept of the the people who would be organizing and settling these political questions would represent a class of the elite who themselves have no real personal possessions and nothing to gain financially, and they, but they would be the cream of the crop in terms of uh, of the blood. They would be mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. And you could do that, like, and if you go back to you talk about China. I mean, Confucianism kind of was that it was in the sense that it was a highly competitive, like in order to become bureaucrat gang under the mandate of heaven, like <laughs> it's incredibly competitive. Right. You have to take tests. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be the best test taker. Right. In order. Yeah. It's, it's, it's plenty of ways to introduce competition and to select for the best. Yeah. Uh, capitalism prides itself on this partly because of its relationship to, I mean, there is the, it, there's some very 19th century kind of ideas we consider like capitalism framing itself in this sort of neo-Darwinian model. Right. Where it's like, 
Right. Yeah. What What was that concept that it was big with among the robber barons? It was like a social Darwinism. I think that was the yeah the, social Darwinism. That was the Vogue yeah. belief in uh, in sort of uh, tavern on the green conversations in, in the yeah, middle of Central it, it Park. Was, you know, a very it, it was very much like the the idea for the Anglosphere in, oh. in the nineteenth century. I mean, that was the that was the mythology behind capitalism that it was it was a competitive process that produced the best and yeah like the, if you fit, that's you that's Ayn Randism and, yeah and yeah for sure it is yeah yeah Ayn Rand is a whole subject in itself because yeah. Ayn, Ayn Rand in a lot of ways like a perversion of Nietzsche it's a very like Jewish perversion of Nietzsche yeah I mean, and, but see at the time like when she was writing Atlas Shrugged coming from the Soviet Union where the commissars or whoever like had basically taken her father's shop away from him and she comes and you know the the gulags and these sort of like slave labor gangs but what like, did he do to deserve it i don't know but i my, my main point was when she <laughs> arrived when she arrived in new york and she saw all these skyscrapers and she was she was in awe and and she was uh you know like wow like what was the system that produced this and I can empathize with that. And I also would say, well, she also the big... famously said that you should get on your knees and kiss the smokestacks <laughs> of the industrial revolution. I know. I know she, she fetishized some very weird things, but, um, yeah, like child slavery. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I'm just saying like, okay, the, the ability of that system to produce those skyscrapers was a thing. And at the time it actually was, the pinnacle of at least uh, civil engineering for let's say in in, architectural uh, triumph um, in the modern world, maybe historically Europe produced, you know, more magnificent looking uh, architecture and things like that. Absolutely. No, I agree with you actually, but at the time it was sort of done on a bigger scale and art deco, I still think is actually a pretty awesome piece of architecture. Yeah, I, 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 I have a soft spot for art deco. Absolutely. It's really cool. And, and that's sort of what she fetishized in um, the fountainhead, I think. And it was, uh, that's actually, I think a much better book than was she Atlas, fetishized Atlas Mary. And she, she was a, she like, did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was a, definitely. You had a, was a, there was a sexual aspect to that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, but okay. But what I was going to say was that, okay, well, where are the skyscrapers now? Well, they're not in America. What do you need skyscrapers for though? I mean, you know, you maybe don't, but it, it's a matter of uh, taste, but it's, it, my point is that our capitalist system is sort of grinding its gears right now. It, it doesn't seem to be able to harness to the same degree, at least in my opinion, uh, investment in interesting projects. And I think there's something lacking in, in whatever it is that uh, we're supposed to be about that used to produce uh, the uh, Chrysler building and the Empire State building, which were both actually commissioned by uh, extremely wealthy <laughs> men. <laughs> and uh, Chrysler building obviously was uh, Chrysler and uh, Empire State Building was um, actually I, I'm blanking on this now. I think I was I was going to say it was Rockefeller, but he did Rockefeller Center. I actually can't remember off the top of my head who, who did Empire State Building. But those uh, those types of buildings, actually Rockefeller Center is kind of kind of ugly. And if you've seen what they've done with their uh, entrance uh, statue, um, 
it really starts you to <laughs> really starts up the conspiracy theories again. Nick, you shared a picture of that recently about what they did. Cause it used to actually be Atlas with the world right. on his yeah, back, yeah, 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 literally yeah, yeah. Atlas. <laughs> okay. Yeah, from like Atlas right. shrugs cover. Right. And it's, uh, it's now like a Momajubu, like uh, African art sculpture. Um, I don't know what now. I, I don't even know where that's from or who. So the who thing is, those. Adam, like I, like I have, I have an ideological view of, of this all because yeah. what we're ultimately talking about are, are political questions. But the thing is, is that like cap capitalism, there's a lot of very nebulous aspects to it because even under capitalism, you see things that are reminiscent of things that took place in the past. I mean, you, the, the idea of some wealthy nobleman commissioning like a vanity project to himself that is also maybe publicly beneficial or whatever, like this stuff that's taking place all the way through the ancient world. I mean, there's nothing especially new about that. There's nothing especially new about much of this. What's new is that we take it for granted and accept that like this is the basis of what people use. They use the S word. They say this is the basis of a society. But it's it's not the basis of a society. Basis of a society is your relationship to people, to your people, to your you know your tribe, or in a feudal hierarchy to your you know to the the people who come and collect collect the grain at the at the harvest or whatever. You know, I mean, it's I don't believe that like the ideal state has not been created because it, it may very well be not possible to create the ideal state. I'm not like somebody who believes that, oh, well, you know, you can just get it right. I mean, we might as well try because we're living under, at least if you had the opportunity to try, I should say, you might as well try. But I'm, I am somebody who is, I am skeptical of the state as an institution because the history of the state is very brutal and the history of the state is, is lied about extensively. Yeah. You know, it's just another tool in exploitation and domination. And the idea of like a state that could be used defensively uh, as, you know, this sort of the formulation of the Third Reich in the context of the 20th century and industrial society and modernity, like that's a really appealing concept. But I, at this point, it's hard to say like what you do with this kind of scale. And who you could get to order and direct these things. I mean, do you get like, I don't know, art, art, racist artificial intelligence or something <laughs> to, <laughs> to organize society? I don't believe we live in a society. And I just, to me, it's like, you know, there's parasites and exploiters. And those are the people who hold power. And nobody, you're right, nobody creates anything beautiful anymore because nobody has any, nobody really believes they live in. Yeah, they, they don't want to invest in posterity because right, right. they don't really share anything in common with those around. At least they don't feel like they do. And it's one thing to invest in your your heirs, but if you consider your, your countrymen also and indirectly your heirs, um, you do get, I think, more magnificent works of art. You do get more uh, future institutions, I think, that are 
at least I, I would hope, I, I do still believe somehow that there were good intentions in setting up, uh, you know, the Carnegie's like setting up libraries and things like that. I, I, I'm sure there's corruption and cynicism involved as well, but, um, you, you don't see as much of that. I mean, I guess the, the, the current version is, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's giving pledge, uh, Bill Gates, uh, trying to sterilize Africa, <laughs> but it's like, I don't know the, the, the current oligarch class is very odd. Um, I don't feel like they feel like they have anything in common with most people. It's really, uh, they're buying up, you know, farmland in Montana while they're telling you to eat uh, vegetable burgers. And it's like, okay. Or insect burgers. And, um, I don't know if it was all that different back in the day. I mean, you certainly had, uh, your share of really nasty people like Rockefeller. I think it was different. I mean, I think that the, the golden age of, of Aryan society was the Hellenic world. I mean, that's, and it, yes, there were like, there was still exploitation and slavery, but that was, it wasn't within, it wasn't within the, the Volk. It wasn't within the people. It was, it was practiced outside. Well, and I, mean, I think a lot of that stems from just the smaller scale of societies. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Completely. I mean, you're Absolutely. literally living next to these people and you know them versus today you're on the internet and no, not nobody, really knowing your neighbors. So. The, the pro-social state uh, at scale has not yet. It hasn't. I mean, is it possible? Maybe. Maybe it's possible. Uh, yeah. But you would need you would need a certain level of human capital that I'm not sure how you would arrive at. Like you would definitely take at least it would it would take at least two generations, and it would take that the first generation that was able to. Uh, slaughter all the parasites and racially cleanse the Western world, they would need to then bring up a, a new caste of rulers to create like the thousand year Reich or whatever. Uh, that's basically what would need to happen is you need to kill millions of people. Okay. All and, right. The, the, the opinions expressed by this particular co-host are not necessarily the opinions of the show as a whole or the other co-host. I just want to put that disclaimer and go ahead, Nick. <laughs> I'm just telling you what you would need to do if you wanted justice. And if you wanted a future that was something other than perpetual exploitation, debt, slavery, and, you know, a slow grinding away at your progeny. It would it would take it would take something so radical is my point, and to do it at scale I don't know I mean like I I don't pretend to have any answer there I well I think do, does it have both. to be so violent and radical I mean do you Absolutely. not uh, yeah. I, I, it okay and and maybe I, I'm not I'm not excluding that possibility but would you include the possibility that we just haven't come up with a good enough idea or, or system or process or like a compromise just, for world peace. Well, kind of thing. look, like I mean, I do think there is something to the fact that if something isn't happening, there's probably fundamentally something fundamentally wrong with the formulation of the concept, because if it was so great, don't you think more people would try to get behind it? Um, I think there, this is sort of getting back to, you know, sales, like, logic. It's like, well, you know, my customers are idiots, but my product is really great. And I've talked to a million customers and they all think it sucks, but they're I mean, all people dumb. People would get behind. I'll tell you what people would get behind in mass. People would get behind. If you sold them the good thing, 
it costs them nothing. That's what they get behind. If you're <laughs> well, like, of course. If you're like something you're for like, nothing, yeah, you can have, the ultimate like, deal. It'll, it'll be great. Like it'll work out for you. Like well, that's what politicians do all the time. We're gonna yeah, give exactly. you something that, that was, for nothing. That was the orange delusion. What's every politician? But, yeah, uh, but it reached its peak because like that was the one that really started to kind of promise the people. Well, I think Obama something. did that too. Well, kind of. To a different yeah. segment, but yeah, know. a different segment. But those people were doing fine. <laughs> you know, I don't I mean? know. Shaniqua. I got mean, they're Obama not. They're not. I don't know how they're doing now, but <laughs> back then they were they were doing all right. Oh man, I'm just um, saying, man. I I think it's interesting that we got to this point. I don't know if we're going to include this uh, um, in the in the show recording. Why not? We've been on a long enough hiatus. I think yeah, might as well. Might like I, I'm just saying, like. It's interesting because we got to this. It comes back. I, I think it proves my point that <laughs> start, when you start talking about this, you come back to the political question. It's you know, it's about. Oh yeah, escape. yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. ultimately a political question. Well, and, okay. I don't know what you mean exactly by political. I think it includes the political, but I think it's also economic. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't well, it is. Yeah. The, the, yeah, in the sense that it's. The, the political encompasses the economic is is my point and so like what what you have to say about banking or these bank mm-hmm. institutions how they mm-hmm. behave mm-hmm. whatever the particular laws that are regulating them at any given time like these all fall under a broader political question and their history sure their relationship it's their relationship to the formal state i mean this is what constitutes the system i mean they need like you can't like these people aren't able to if you're in debt to them or whatever they need the system to they need the system's courts they need the system's goons yeah. you know it's it it's political i mean it's i mean you used to have we used to have debtor prisons right that was that was a phenomenon in european history yeah in europe they did yeah i don't i don't think the united states ever did but um uh, the United States, uh, it was my understanding, the United States is the was the last pseudo-European country to actually implement bankruptcy laws. They were the last? I thought they were actually one of the first. They, no, but, they were uh, the last, is my understanding. Yeah, Yeah, because bankruptcy it, is actually very pro uh, the little guy because yeah, he can exactly. get out of debt. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, yeah. The United States has always been, again, this is the point I made earlier with this like weird paradoxical relationship between the people, who, you know, my ancestors, et cetera, who left Europe often under the pretense of escaping like debt peonage or being brought here as debt slaves, like as slaves. Indentured debt. servants. Yeah. 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 One of my least favorite terms, indentured servant. Why? Why, uh, why is that bad? Uh, it's just a way of obfuscating. You think it's a euphemism? Of, yeah, it's a euphemism for slavery yeah. that yeah, is, it is. Yeah. born out of uh, yeah. out of uh, deference given to the Negroid uh, slave. <laughs> yeah, that like yeah, they probably. that yeah. the experience of the Negroid slave is like real U- slavery, unique, but uniquely, the white man uniquely bad. Yeah, versus yeah, uh, precisely. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. I, that's why I just. That's why I hate it. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And, anyways, my point is like. Americans have a pretty confused relationship, I think, to these kinds of things. Um, you know, it part of it, I think, is a peasant sort of peasant defensive attitude that like they think that in the end, like they're, you know, when you 
when you hold like sacrosanct these like I these yeah one day things. I'll get rich yeah uh, one day as, I'll get rich as Chris Matthews property. used to say you you know you end up defending multinational corporations under this like notion of, of, of property rights or something you know yeah like when they when they hear when your American red state parole talks about capitalism they're not defending the honor of Goldman Sachs but at the same time they are that's that's the that's the weird part of the American. Well, I, I think the middle class does have a legitimate, uh, at least they used to have a more legitimate uh, incentive to want to protect property because they, they, they are property holders. Now, albeit they're microscopic compared to the, uh, the robber barons and becoming more microscopic by the day. But you could, you could look at the statistics. Are you really a property holder if you pay property taxes, though? Well, um, almost everyone pays taxes except for the super rich. And... Uh, they, we were promised. We were promised that there would be no. When we settled out west here, like we were promised that that was not going to be a thing. Well, the U.S. government is notorious for breaking its promises. So, uh, you know, who who's the sucker there? I mean, did you really believe it to begin with? You know, I I don't know. <laughs> uh, and plus, the U.S. government is composed of people that there's a revolving door. Those are different people too. I'm not defending you know, like lying, like I, I'm not, I'm really not, but I also don't want to encourage naivete. I do think people need to be careful. And there is, I think something to be said for, look, dude, like the world is not a nice place. Don't be stupid. Um, and don't expect other people to look out for you. And, you know, yeah, fuck people who don't look out for you. And the, you know, the person who does is your brother, definitely. But I don't expect a stranger to necessarily be honorable. That's all I'm saying. I, I just want people to just just be careful. Sure. Um, and you know, I, I'm coming yeah. more and more to the conclusion that we never should have exterminated the red man. Because I mean, when you think about it, you know, especially out west, it's like basically what you did is you took this one savage land, you exterminated you know, the savage people of this land in order to make space for Negroes, Jewish bankers Peasants. and like the deratritus of the world. Right. It's, I mean, my ideology, if I had it, like if I could sum it up, I, I want to see the return of frontiers because the things that I value in terms of what virtues or moral judgments are meaningful to me are the type that only really come from frontier existence. Hey, speaking of which, I watched Vanishing Point last night. Oh, I love it. Oh, dude, that's one of my absolute favorite movies. I know you, I know you do. <laughs> yeah. I and I knew and I knew the uh the radio uh hosts. Yeah, uh, yeah. We don't need to talk. We can ignore that part of no, it. No, 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 no. I think it's good. I I cuz I I I remember from the Audio Slave um video that line i think it's a great line you don't like it no i just mean the racial politics and uh, oh whatever sort of, just yeah exactly crap but it's oh like, what, what, what what which one are you referring to no this station is named after kowalski kowalski whom, yeah the last the, the last yeah. american, hero american hero to whom speed, speed. means freedom, of the, freedom soul. of the soul yeah <laughs> you gotta love that <laughs> oh it's fantastic i actually i have a perfect outro for that then too yeah it's yeah that's a fantastic movie and that's that's what that movie's about actually 
it's about like him trying to to return to the frontier to return it's it's when people like when i talk about freedom i don't talk about freedom like the the american pig capitalist talks about freedom i mean freedom is is freedom the from question death, is you know? not when he's gonna stop but, but who, who is gonna, gonna stop, stop him <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and I have oh, fucked it. After when I saw it when I was a kid, I was like, I always wanted one of the I, the 1971. Dot, again, yeah, the the great that was one of the great claims that America had was their ability to make fantastic machines. And I mean, oh, that car is awesome. Dodge ever made anything is not as is just like absolutely perfect as the. 71 and 72 challengers well they they made the uh 13th to 10th scale uh, replica of it recently <laughs> which is cool <laughs> but it's like all right you're just like going back to your old portfolio okay well, all right yeah but it actually you know the cars in that movie i i just remember um because i mean like i've seen bullet which is another fantastic movie uh arguably yeah well it's great arguably better but it, it uh you know what's i don't it, think it's better um vanishing point it is very, less. it's a very pure movie and it like Steve it doesn't complicate on the south san francisco highway at the end is really good come on that that's a classic yeah. movie it's such oh, a good course. movie i'm it, not i'm not gonna knock Bob, but i love bullet that's great yeah bullet's awesome but, but um, bullet has the dodge the dodge charger is the uh the yes. villain car yeah that. it's not as nice i don't think um I think I think the challenge. Well, he was driving. He was driving the Mustang, but the uh, yeah. he was being chased by the Challenger. Yeah, the fastback is. But yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and uh, actually, um, I'm fairly familiar with the uh, the route he supposedly took. It's actually incorrect. It it basically splices different parts of the city out of order. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it does. It's extremely yeah. out of order. But you it's... had to get you had to get those particular <laughs> those like specific scenic. Yeah, you, you need. There's a few shots you really needed, so it didn't need to make sense. You just yeah, needed yeah. to have those. Yeah, but what I was gonna say was, um, I, I was just, I, I should have known that. Like, okay, like, well, guess what? Like, you're not gonna see a Dodge Neon or some piece of shit Prius rolling down the highway in 1971. Obviously, those cars had not been invented yet. But I was like, I was looking at like just he's driving down you know a normal road, and there's all these other cars, and I'm like wow, look at all those like beautiful classic cars. Like that was the normal, <laughs> like average person's car. You go and bring a trailer today, you're going to look at a hundred thousand plus for some of those things. And that's like some piece of shit, you know, some normal guy bought for $2,000 back in the seventies. Yeah. You know, Adam, I, I get like, I get kind of your, I get your ethos to a large extent. <laughs> I mean, we've known each other for years and uh, America had something the, going for a while. That's kind of what well, I'm here's saying. Here's where I can it, level it, with it, you on it. I yeah, do yeah. my favorite, my, the part of America that I relate most to is, is more of 19th century. Uh, the race war on the frontiers like that to <laughs> me is defining epic of, of what America was mm -hmm. for, for, for good or for ill. I'm not, I'm not romanticizing it necessarily, but I do also admire the sort of like Luciferian Promethean, like insanity of the 20th century of just like this drive <laughs> to create the machine. <laughs> I don't think it was ever a socially productive thing. And that's where I disagree with you, but I yeah. can, I can still admire it from that, from that standpoint of like, I mean, Ford came the closest. And I think if I had to be honest, like in our assessment of the project we worked on here for a few years now, yep. 
I think that our Henry Ford episode is like our best episode. Interesting. Like uh, at least in the thing, in the sense of like, I think it cap like, capturing what it, it, yeah, was possible. Well, and it captures this, like this conversation we're having now. I think that's kind of where we come back. Ford, Ford hated bankers for the record. He did. And, yeah. He represents yeah. like so much of what we're talking, like the, he wanted to create a machine for the people, right. you know? And like how he spent his later years returning to sort of a simple agrarian existence. Right. Outside of, you know, as much outside of the system yeah, as possible. He, he was big into camping. He was against the the um, uh, the American uh, terror war against Europe. Uh, you know, he <laughs> he rode out against the, against the peace ship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he was a great hero. And I think he embodied. Yeah, the New York Times just, of course, like made fun of him for that. Like, of course, like, you know. A man about peace. How horrible. He, he embodies so many of these contradictions of America, but he really tried to to square that circle, you know. Yeah. Industri- with industrial capitalism, mm-hmm. but also being uh, pro-social in what he was trying to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. I think he, he, he tried. Um, he was operating within the framework of the the madness of the this continent and it's it, the, the cursed soil. Yeah. <laughs> But he was he was somebody who I think like that's that's if you are looking for like a true American hero, that, that is that is one figure that I think really captures what can be salvaged from the, the wreckage of this shithole fucking dystopian um, anti-society. And I think okay. I think we we all can relate like but we're at least we're the only ones here now. But yeah. yeah. We could, I think we can both see something that we admire for, and some of that overlaps. So maybe some of that's a little different, but mm-hmm. I, I get the uh, admiration for technics and for the creation of, of great industrial projects yeah. and for people who are proficient. I, I understand. I, I admire people who can actually get things done versus talk I know, about yeah, it. I know, I know you do. And yeah. I, I strive to to get things done in my own life. And and in the m- very minimal sense of what I do accomplish, it is hard. And for somebody who can organize and orchestrate something that, mm, I, I mean, I'm going to say, you know, my opinion, mag- magnificent and impressive at least, from you know, a little island in the middle of, uh, you know, Detroit, you know, like Zug Island or something. And, and that's where they filmed Robocop by the way. And to build the river Rouge, uh, facility out of nothing. Um, it's amazing. And yeah, the Soviet union did it, but they also had to kill a lot of people and point guns at people's heads in order to do it. Henry Ford didn't do that. And so I think that's also to his credit that he was able to, to make people want to do it. Um, which I, you know, is sort of the seductive al- element of what America is kind of built upon that it, the, it seduces you. Know, the illusion you, right? and the promise of freedom. Right. Right. You know, that's, and freedom, freedom in the, the context of history is, is usually a spook. I mean, the, you have limited moments where you have, I mean, freedom, freedom for some usually comes with the subjugation of others, you know, it's like, I mean, that's what it, that's what a conquering aristocracy was, right? I mean, you move in and if you, if you don't keep moving along, you step out there and you create a, a hierarchy of subjugation. 
you know, and it's it's not really it's not my place here to, to moralize about that necessarily. It's just we're in we live in a in this inverted hierarchy where it was our ancestors who bled for it, who did the killing, conquered this place, and now you have basically um, the merchants as the um, the 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 elite, the nobility, the merchant class. Yeah. But the thing was, it's like that wasn't an accident. That was kind of baked into the pie all along, partly because of it has. Yeah, I mean, this complicated subject, religion and ideology, and you know the 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 specific history of of the Anglosphere in general. But I, America is always a difficult thing to talk about for me. It's I mean we do it all the time. But <laughs> what you do on Memorial Day? I actually had a very American Memorial Day weekend. I was out. I was out in the woods and like, you know, drank a bunch of beer and like blew some shit up and ran into a bear. Nice. It was nice. <laughs> what What did the bear think? Was he like, "Why is this he an- animal?" He was like, like behaving uh, like these other strange animals that have invaded my territory. Or yeah, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it. I'm trying to remember if I did anything else. I, I feel like there was something I was supposed to remember for Memorial Day. I don't know what that day is. What you're supposed to remember, what the memorial is about. The, the but... fallen. I don't. I what I don't remember is the difference between that and Veterans Day. I think the Veterans Day are the ones who are still alive, and the Memorial Day is about the ones who have uh, fallen. So you you got to remember specifically people who prosecuted wars on behalf of American finance capitalism, right? That's the, uh, you could, you could say that you could say that. Okay. <clears throat> so I do also, happen to know somebody that who, include, who, like, who did if die. You're a, um, if you're a Jewish banker and you like happen to find your way out of the 20th floor window <laughs> of the skyscraper, is that like, are you also memorialized too? I don't think so. At least not it doesn't work that directly. I don't think they'd want to bring attention to themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think sense. they'd rather um, they'd they'd rather give the uh, you know the conscripts some some sense of dignity again the allure of freedom right yes the... freedom wild normal and we want our freedom 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 is that Monty Python oh no doesn't matter I don't know man I like. Do you have any other tangents that you'd like to go down? I, we kind of touched upon it. I was just sort of uh, going to sort of explore the ramifications of having an outsized financial sector. Um, I I don't think we have time at this point to really go into the, the weeds of how finance functions. I think we talked about it enough. Um, I will say I don't think banks and financial instruments are inherently evil, but I do think there is something wrong when there are people making billions of dollars and never actually producing anything of tangible value. Uh, and effectively a lot of these people are profiting off other people's losses in a literal zero sum situation. Or if you look at something like uh, high speed trading where people are, are literally betting on the microsecond transitions of prices of, companies that they admit themselves because i know some of these day traders or microsecond traders more aptly put that literally do not understand what the companies that they're trading do 
that is that is absolutely wrong. I think that there's something correct when somebody makes an invest an informed investment to try to create a project that has benefit, like you're building a dam to generate electricity and control floods, and then that that power can then be used to uh, you know heat homes and and power little workshops. That's productive, okay. But if you're if you're trading on the microsecond uh, changes in price of a company you don't even understand, you're not helping anything. And you're, you're only profiting if somebody else loses on the other side of that trade. It's basically a giant casino and casinos are not beneficial to society as a whole. They're, they're parasitic. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an antisocial. Yes. But I would, I would extend that to say that any type of any institution or any individual who operates on the basis of debt is themselves an antisocial actor. All right, there you have it. There, there are the uh, the co-host perspectives. Go out there and change the world for the better, team. Or just I don't know, kill your local banker <laughs> on Minecraft. <laughs> on Minecraft, yeah. No, I mean, like, I the thing is, is like these what they're doing is pretty fragile and. What I'm looking forward to is a situation in which like they are expected to fucking collect themselves, you know, to, 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 they benefit so much from the obfuscation that comes from the complexity of the system that, I mean, in the ancient world, like, or I mean, not just the ancient world, like in the, the third world, I mean, like everybody hates a slumlord, but the thing about a slumlord is like at least that person is out in the open. Like you know who they are, and you know when they come into the restaurant or whatever to spit in their soup. It's the the problem is when you have like these different layers. They call of, that disintermediation. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean like there's you're not gonna just like wave a a magic guillotine. I mean, you, you could, but like, <laughs> it, like it, it, <laughs> well, they did uh, many times throughout history. I mean, I don't know, dude. At the end of the day, like, it's like it's worth trying, right? I've always said I I don't necessarily have a problem with a revolution. I just want a solution after the revolution. Yeah, yeah. I I just um. Yeah, bankers. I mean, they're pretty universally loathed, though. I know. Yeah, that, they like, are. The yeah, 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 yeah. Most people don't really like uh, banks. Um, I well, I reluctantly have, and then there's a, there's a accept healthy, like, a semi-function has, for them, but under heavy trust. heavy regulation. But go ahead. You know, I mean, like plenty of like Scott Irish in America would like never use banks. Just like keep keep whatever they if they had to have banknotes or whatever if that was what's being traded like you, you keep that shit under a mattress you know? well but I'll, be, I'll be honest with you and i have actually come around on this you can you could take advantage of banks and you could use debt if you're not uninformed and this is the problem because a lot of people are really careless with it but you could actually do extremely well especially in housing i mean it's just so heavily subsidized if you get a fixed rate mm-hmm. mortgage mm-hmm. And you have an inflationary environment like like you have right now. The bank is losing money on you. 
basically. And you, you can make, and that's what arguably was a contributor to the housing crisis was that a lot of Americans were basically playing a casino game with their house. But, uh, historically speaking, that was a very safe investment. And a lot of people, and if, you know, your parents, boomers, you know, in particular, their biggest asset is their house because it's, it's gone up a lot. And if you had not borrowed, yes, you're locked into a contract, but if you had not done that, you actually would have missed out on quite a big, uh, up, up, uptick in your, your net worth. So I don't necessarily think you as the little person are going to be screwed. If you take out loan, I would definitely not recommend credit card debt. There's really nothing to be gained from that unless you're, you're desperately trying to get over a bad patch, but you got to pay that off quickly. I mean, it's like 20% a year. It's, it's, it's a criminal rate, but mortgages, I mean, geez, if you get a a 2.5 rate, you know, two years ago when things were that low, you're looking at five and a half now with inflation at seven, you're, you're doing pretty good. If you got a loan at that rate, you're, you're effectively, you know, getting free money every, every month. So I'm just, I'm just trying to keep it a little more pragmatic and not as, uh, ideological. Cause I mean, you know, the devil's in the details, like these things, like in real life, like you actually, you have to take things as they come and, and look at them and evaluate them. And, and if you're, if you're smart, you can make some moves. You're not, you're never going to be, you know, Jared Kushner, uh, you know, inheriting billions of dollars and basically marrying another billionaire heir. Um, that's just a different reality. And, and it's honestly, it's better to put them out of your mind because it, it sort of just makes you depressed. So everybody is dealt a hand in this casino of life that we live in, or uh, the casino of Goldman Sachs, as it were, in America. And you just play your hand the best you can and never trust the house. You always hide your cards <laughs> and barely trust the guy who's uh, next to you at the table that you brought with you. Um, and uh, definitely cash out when you can. It's a very American ethos, Adam. Well, I was born here. Yeah. Born here. One one could argue Anna. it's very apropos for an old western saloon that you uh you sometimes describe as being an interesting time period on the frontier. That's the uh, that's the way Cowboy. you get line. It's uh some will rob you with a six gun, uh, some with a fountain pen. This radio station was named Kowalski. In honor of the last American hero to whom speed means freedom of the soul.